Hey. Uh, is America still here? Because I can't tell. This is a horrible day in the uh, political slash American world, and we're going to glide right past it. Actually, it started out pretty good. Uh, but yeah, we're- <laughs> that's true. We, we had a great morning. <laughs> yes. It's been a roller coaster. Uh, but yeah, we're, we're, we're going to glide right past this because you all need a break, I'm sure. And so do we. And so we're going to have a tech show like usual. With that happy thing behind us, let's start with some follow-up. And Pared Flintstone, which I believe is actually supposed to be pronounced Fred Flintstone, writes, Do you want to know how to transform 62-year-old ears into 16-year-old ears? Download one of the free hearing test iOS apps and then point uh, settings audiovisual headphone accommodations audiogram to the resultant audiogram. I didn't even know that you could do such a thing. That is extremely cool. Uh, Fred Flintstone continues, this EQs the audio output to compensate for frequency loss according to the audiogram. Even with relatively minor hearing loss, this gave this 62-year-old his 16-year-old ears back and newfound enjoyment of music. Uh, Using the audiogram uh, provides personalized and much more nuanced EQ adjustment than the built-in iOS presets. Now, just to be clear, John, you did just have a birthday, but you are not yet 62. Is that correct? No, and I think my hearing is actually pretty good. But uh, this this is related to someone suggesting that Marco look into the EQ settings for uh, for the AirPods Max. He said he tried them. They all seem kind of extreme. Apparently, this is a a pluggable system, so you can, uh, you know, these these apps, these hearing test apps. I imagine they're a plague on the App Store. Like, I don't I don't know this for a fact, but I imagine if there's one of them, there's probably a thousand. Test your hearing free anyway. Um, I actually made one. Yeah, what they'll do is make a personalized audiogram for you. Wait, 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 wait slow down. We're just gonna let that glide right by. What do you mean you made one? <laughs> I never released it. Uh, back when I when I had my like temporary hearing injury a few years back. I uh, made a hearing test app so I could tell, like, as I was getting better, if I was getting better and how. Huh. You know, one of those things that goes to, like, you know, it plays different beeps at different uh, frequencies and different volume levels. And, you have to raise your hand if you can hear it. Yeah, basically. Uh, which, year did, which year did it come through? Yeah. Um, so, anyway, that will give you a, uh, you know, basically an equalizer preset tailored to your hearing ability. So, it won't be too extreme for you because it will be made based on measuring. Now, I don't know which, because I suspect hearing test apps are a terrible plague filled with scams on the App Store, like so many categories, I've put in a link to one such app that one listener sent, and I assume this one is not a scam, but honestly, I haven't tried it. But um, anyway, check it out if you get a chance, and if you think if you think your hearing may be going, or you just want to uh, play with an app to see what it says about your hearing, if the results turn out that you're, you know, have difficulty hearing certain frequencies, you can make your iPhone uh, accommodate for that and help you hear that better. seems to me like this is a, a opportunity here for apps to just help you generate custom EQ profiles for the system. Because if that's what if that's all this is doing, this is just saying, all right, well, this frequency range boosts this, this or even better if it's parametric. I don't actually know the format, but uh, but if it's if it's a way to supply effectively the inverse of the custom EQ that you want, then any app can generate those files, uh, apparently, or possibly, if you know, as long as the format is documented somewhere. Uh, and then you could uh, theoretically have an app that's like, all right, I, what, if, what if I want to boost this frequency range only and no others? You know, like that, that actually could be really interesting. This sounds like it should be a feature of Overcast buried in the settings somewhere. You've already got the code for it. Just chuck it in there. I mean, ideally, you know, I mean, people don't play a lot of music through Overcast, but, you know, ideally this would be a system setting. Like instead of those like, ancient what is it 11 eq profiles from the ipod era uh that are just like <laughs> fixed like pop mm. rock treble booster or whatever like instead of those also just offer an eq with like you know uh, maybe make it a 10 band eq have 10 sliders across or whatever it is i mean you know i'd go parametrics i'm a nerd but no one else would uh but like 
you know, it, the, the processing power is trivial to, to do EQing. I know because I wrote one into Voice Boost too. Like to do EQing is trivial on modern hardware, so it wouldn't be like a big deal to do it. It also like by offering the presets that they have versus offering it like a custom EQ. There's no there's no real difference in how complex that is to to run live. Um, it's you know the phone is constantly doing all sorts of operations that are way more complicated than running a basic bi-quad filter to, you know, to have an EQ profile. So it's actually really not that hard to do with modern hardware without even noticing the overhead. So they might as well just offer a custom EQ at this point. I mean, that's basically what this is. It is system-wide. I mean, it says headphone accommodations, but I'm assuming this just goes into the system audio pathway. And if you install one of you one of these headphone accommodation audiogram things, every sound that your phone makes, I'm assuming, through any of the audio system gets processed through this thing. So I think what Overcast would have to do is basically be a little miniature hearing test app that produces one of these autogram files. And the only question I have is like, okay, well then do you have to make the user like download it and install it? Because I assume Overcast doesn't have the ability to jam that audiogram into the system preferences thing. Yeah, I would assume there's probably no API for that. Like I, that's probably one of those things where you just have to kind of, you know, export a file and figure it out yourself. But again, I, I don't really see this being something that Overcast has to do. You know, rather this, the, it's the kind of thing where like, I just need to build in a custom EQ to Overcast for people, for people who want that, which is actually a somewhat frequently requested feature. I, and I have the entire engine to do that is already written. It's already in Voice Boost 2. It's been shipping to everybody for like a year. There's just no UI to adjust the parameters of the EQ. And that's, that's, that's what I have to do. Moving on, I thought we'd do a quick Big Sur update. Big Sur! Uh, and I'd let you know that Marco, your favorite thing is happening as we speak, this is being recorded on a mostly untested environment because I have upgraded to Big Sur. I did that a couple of days ago. I did record analog yesterday. However, uh, it has not been edited as yet. That being said, uh, Jim, who does the editing for analog and many other shows that you, that you all enjoy, has said that he did crack open my, file, my files and everything seemed all right. But uh, sorry, Marco, if I make a terrible edit for you, it would not be the first time and unfortunately <laughs> probably won't be the last. <laughs> Uh, but that actually brings us to the next follow-up item because my Big Sur upgrade seems to have been mostly okay until I rebooted. And it's, uh, or maybe I get, actually, I guess it was first boot. And I needed to, I believe, bless the audio hijack um, kernel extension or whatever it's called now. Um, oh, and, and yeah. And in order to do that, I needed to go into system preferences and unlock the security uh, preference or whatever it is. And I needed to type in my computer password. And so, you know, Audio Hijack, I, it was either Audio Hijack or the OS itself knew that I, I might want to do this, you know, prompted me to do all these things. And when I got to the preference pane and it asked for my username and password, it was not Casey, which is my username on the computer. It was Casey Liss. I thought, hmm, I've heard about this somewhere. I think I know what to do. And I think I know what's about to happen. And sure enough... I typed in my password, no dice. I changed Casey list to Casey, typed in my password again, no dice. And as it turns out, what I needed to do was reset my SMC. Does this sound familiar to anyone? So uh, we also got some, uh, some feedback from Tom Bridge, which is the follow-up item that this all leads into. Uh, Tom says, I just had to deal with the same situation as John with regard to the SMC reset. There's even a tech note at Apple for this. Quote, if you can't unlock settings and system preferences <laughs> while using Big this is still a quote, while using Big Sur, uh, Mac OS Big Sur 11.1, your Mac with Apple T2 security chip had, has an issue that requires resetting the SMC. System preferences should accept your password after you reset the SMC. There's a link in the show notes to all of this. Comically, do you know how you reset the SMC in an iMac Pro? Uh, unplug it from the wall for five seconds. Fifteen seconds, but 15. yes. 
yep. and, and then plug it back in and wait five seconds and then press the power button. Yep, that is correct. That is the official guidance. Right, and some, a bunch of other people wrote in to tell us about this. Like the reason, the reason why SMC reset has anything to do with this or anything to do with T2 stuff is apparently, you know, any, any dialogue that asks for authentication that could potentially be tied into touch ID. Cause you know how you can use touch ID to use, to do some, uh, password dialogues on the Mac, but not all of them, but any one of them that sort of triggers the subsystem that says, Hey, if you had a Mac with touch ID and that was all registered, we would ask you for your fingerprint. That all goes through the T2. And somehow the Big Sur update hoses something having to do with good old Bridge OS running on the T2. And if it's hosed, when you shut down your computer, the T2 is still there doing its thing. The only way to sort of reset the T2 is, in the case of a desktop computer, to remove power from it and say, guess what, T2, now you're stopped because you don't have any electricity. (laughs) And then the T2 will start back up and presumably operate correctly. Now, what's wrong with the T2 after the Big Sur update that it needs to be reset? I don't know. Uh, people have theories about something inside of the T2 crashing or whatever. The bottom line is that those auth dialogues tie into the T2 because of Touch ID, and if they're hosed, you must reset the SMC T2 subsystem uh, by, in the case of a desktop Mac, depriving enough power. It's why it's more complicated on laptops because you can't take the batteries out, right? Because they're sealed inside this. So you got to do some other dance. That's why, again, look at the tech note. Follow the instructions for your specific computer to re- reset the SMC. Don't just assume because you have a desktop it's unplugged because maybe you don't have a thing with a T2 in it. Indeed. Can you tell me, John, about this follow-up with regard to the Famicom? Sure. Andrew Odinger wrote in to tell us that the Nintendo Famicom had a microphone built into the second controller only. Famicom is what the we what we know as the Nintendo Entertainment System in the U.S. or the NES first existed as the Famicom, which was short for Family Computer in Japan. And it looked different, uh, but the controllers were very similar. Little, you know, little rectangle, the NES mm-hmm. rectangle with the D-pad and the two buttons. Anyway, <laughs> uh, it had two controllers with comically short wires in them that you couldn't remove, um, and the second control had a microphone in it. Um, so Andrew says, like many of us in the U.S., I first learned of it when playing Le- the Legend of Zelda. The game manual stated that an irritating enemy, the pole's voice, hated loud sounds. However, the NES had no microphone, so everybody in the U.S. made futile attempts to use other weapons to defeat it, usually the recorder or flute. In Japan, however, one only needed to yell into the microphone, eradicating the pole's voice, and we'll have a link to a YouTube video. They did, I guess they didn't change the manual, because the manual, back in the old days, video games came with manuals that you could read. Uh, and I remember those days. Yeah, you read it in the car on the way home. Yeah, exactly right, Marco, exactly right. And if you saw, like, oh, this enemy hates loud sounds, and in the game you find, like, a flute? Or something, you're like, oh, I know how to beat that enemy. But little did you know that you that what it expected you to do was yell. But, of course, you couldn't yell in the U.S. one. So they, they changed the game. In the U.S. one, you can just shoot them with arrows. But in the Japanese version of the game, you can't shoot them with arrows. And the only way you can defeat them is by yelling into the controller. So that is the oldest instance I've seen of Nintendo, at least, using microphones in games. You could yell or probably blow because blowing just sounds like static. Fair enough. Tell me about the PS5 controller's weight, please. Yeah, I should have taken better notes on my controller comments because I thought of more things once we were off the air that I forgot to mention. One of them is the PS5 controller is heavier than the PS4 controller, which is mostly just an accessibility issue because it's not heavier enough that anyone will notice. But someone like me who has wrists that have slowly been destroyed by RSI over the years, the weight of the controller actually matters. Like, I'm not holding the controller up in the air when I play. Part of me playing with the console is that I get to rest my sort of my arms on my legs like the controller is in my lap, right? But even in that instance, it's like, well, you're not really holding the controller up. It's still, it is a heavy weight in your hand that's being supported by your fingers and your hands. And I feel the difference, like a little tiny bit. It's not uh, the end of the world, but I would prefer a lighter controller. But the slightly heavier controller is the price you pay for the really cool rumble stuff. 
All right, tell me about the PlayStation 5 UI and following games. Uh, Terrence was one of many people to write in to give me some advice on how I could make the PS5 UI less sort of ad bannery. I was annoyed that there are things in my face that I didn't want to see when I turn on the UI, these big tiles that are telling me about new games or whatever, and sometimes they were mostly relevant, but other times it was like, I don't want to know about that. Anyway, um, apparently there's a mechanism in the PlayStation 5 UI where you can quote-unquote follow, like like follow on Twitter, a game. Uh, and I never did that. I never knew about that feature, but basically any game that you own becomes followed by default. And that makes some sense in terms of why am I seeing things about Destiny and stuff, because I own Destiny, right? But also, if you are a subscriber to PlayStation Plus, you get a lot of free games as part of PlayStation Plus. You know, they're just they're just yours, you know, for paying the monthly fee, which is a great deal, actually, especially if you haven't played those games. Usually they're good games, but older games. Anyway, I ended up, quote unquote, following things like God of War or Fortnite and stuff that I don't play on the PlayStation at all. And so that's why I'm seeing some, you know, Fortnite thing on my face constantly every time I turn on my computer. It was because I was following Fortnite. So if you go to the game and unfollow it, then you won't see those tiles anymore. So I did that and it helped. But unfortunately, you can't unfollow, as far as I'm aware, the PlayStation Store. And I don't want to see the store telling me about stuff either. So the struggle against the uh, PS5 uh, banner-filled UI continues, but I've definitely improved things since last week. We have to do like a little bit of uh, vocabulary for the next section. So we have a lot of feedback, which is really good, about um, feedbacks and radar and cyst diagnosis and things of that nature. So uh, we're going to talk about the galaxy's largest black hole, and that is Apple's feedback system. And so we're going to use several different terms, all probably interchangeably. Uh, feedback is is what Apple currently calls, to the best of my knowledge, uh, basically a bug report. You use an app called Feedback Assistant, and you create a feedback. In the olden days, and I think still internally within Apple, these were called radars. Um, so, in, in, so radar is the app that Apple uses that you, that they use to do their or track their bugs and, and things of that nature. An individual instance, you know, an individual bug or ticket, if you will, is was also also often called a radar. Uh, Cystiagnose is basically, as we discussed before, just uh, if you have something bad happen, Apple needs to be able to recreate to some degree what was going on in your system at the time. And that's not an unreasonable request. And assist diagnose basically says when when the user does some you know particular incantation, which varies based on OS and device, then the the OS and the will will write uh, potentially tens of thousands of lines of data and logs to a very, very large file, usually a couple hundred megs at least, which you can then upload to Apple so they can try to piece together what was going on at the time. So that's just a little vocabulary to get out. So hopefully we all are on the same page. And if you recall, all of us were probably me more than most. We're lamenting the fact that if you create a radar with Apple, if you create a bug report with Apple, it just disappears into the ether. It is seriously the, the galaxy's largest black hole. And it's very frustrating from a user's perspective, and especially from a developer's perspective, because you want some amounts of feedback, and typically you get precisely zero. So we had a bunch of different people, some of whom are at Apple, some of whom are uh, former Apple, write in and say, hey, here's my perspective on this. And what what John and Marco and I are going to go through over the next several minutes is kind of an amalgamation of several different pieces of <laughs> feedback. From I believe you mean several different feedbacks. 
That's right. Several different feedbacks uh, from several different people. So uh, that, that's kind of the stage that, I'm, that we're, we're standing on, if you will, right now. So with that said, uh, the first piece of feedbacks <laughs> that we got, uh, again, from either a current or former Apple employee, uh, this individual writes, you file a radar and then get a reply saying, quote, attach a cystiagnose, quote. This can optimistically be taken as an acknowledgement that someone believes your bug is real, but that they have no idea how to reproduce it on demand or fix it. It can also have other meanings, though. I think that is a very optimistic uh, take. Very optimistic. In the example that I gave, you know, they believe your bug is real, but they have no idea how to reproduce it. Well, I attached a sample project that you can build. The only thing this project does is reproduce the bug. And plus, there was instructions on how to use the sample project to reproduce the bug. So that's not why they asked me for a cystagnose. I can understand, like Casey said, in the vocabulary section, here's why they want a cystagnose. (laughs) But as we'll see in a little bit, even that is not explained well. Right. And just in case it wasn't clear, like John said, a sample project means it's something that you can run, that an Apple person could run on their device that will specifically tickle the particular bug in question. So hypothetically, there should be no need for anything else because you run this little app, be that for your Mac or for your iOS device or whatever, and perform whatever thing that the developer wants you to perform. And in hypothetically, if everything goes according to plan, it will... It, it will make that bug happen. And so you really shouldn't need anything else. And actually, it's probably the best thing that a developer can give Apple yeah, it, in a radar. It's the gold standard of bug reproductions. To be clear, we keep right. saying sample project. When we say project, we mean an Xcode project. We give them the source code. It says, here is the source code for my Xcode project. So not only do they have an app that they can run after they build it, they have the full source code to your app, which hopefully is like 20 lines long. Here, I'm reproducing the bug. Sometimes there have to be instructions because, like, launch the app, then do this, then do that. And here's my expected behavior, and here's the actual behavior. So we're we're giving them an explicit way to reproduce it. We've already narrowed the bug down to the smallest possible case, and they have the source code. Like, this is what everybody wants for any bug report. Um, and, yeah, so that's it's all the more frustrating when you take the time to make a new Xcode project, narrow the bug down yourself, get it to the point where you have the minimal set of code that reproduces the problem, and still nothing. Right. And to use a really crummy analogy, imagine you're making like some 50 step recipe and you realize that, oh, I used a bad ingredient somewhere because I can tell it tastes like garbage. Well, then you need to go through this recipe and like do it all over again in order to figure out, okay, which specific one of these ingredients was was wrong. And that's kind of what a lot a lot of times happens is, you know, you have a fully functioning app, like take Overcast, for example. I, I don't remember, Marco, if you know off the top of your head how big Overcast is, but I'd assume it's, you know, several thousand, if not tens of thousands of lines of code. Sounds about right. I think it's like 80,000 or something. There you go. So there's effectively 80,000 ingredients in this casserole, if you will. So in order to find the one or two or 10 things that are really causing the problem can be hours upon hours of work. So imagine how frustrating it is for us on this side of the table when we put in the work to, to give Apple this just perfect present uh, that they can just run immediately and, and see exactly what's going on. And then the response we get in return is, oh, can I have a cystiagnose? No, no, you can't have a cystiagnose. You've already got what you need. No, you can't. Uh, it's so frustrating. So anyway, uh, moving on from the Apple people, time of bug is important when you take a cystiagnose because as you can see in the console app, there are often thousands, if not tens of thousands of logs per second. 
this individual writes, I used to be a screener for Apple search bugs, and you wouldn't believe the variation in times between when people experience bugs and when they launch a sysdiagnose. The tools for analyzing sysdiagnose logs also suck hard. That's the Apple person's quote, by the way. Uh, the amount of effort it takes to write down the time you saw a bug is much smaller than the effort it takes to find the bug you're describing in a sysdiagnose. Right. So that's the explanation. Now, here's how Apple asks for a sysdiagnose in the feedbacks that I have. This is directly quoting from one of my feedbacks, and I'm not omitting anything. Please capture a sysdiagnose immediately after the issue reproduces. Additionally, comma, please note the exact time, ex colon 1 slash 1 slash 19 space 12 colon 51 space PM. So, all right, this is another tidbit from someone else, according from another uh, piece of feedback on feedbacks. <laughs> if someone asked you when it was taken, that's really interesting because that means someone dramatically misunderstood the directions. Yeah, so the directions say <laughs> capture a cyst diagnose immediately after the issue reproduces. Now, here's there, God, there are so many there are so many problems here in terms of this communication, right? Certainly wasn't clear to me, although it is now clear from listening to all these fe- the feedback things, like capturing a cyst diagnose, like you invoke a thing. There's different ways to invoke it, as Casey said, but you invoke a thing. I, I feel like since cyst diagnose is such a common thing that they're asking for, it's worth the people who work in whatever this department is to have essentially a text, text expander shortcut or a... Uh, standard, uh, you know, link to a web page that explains here's what a cyst diagnosis is, right? A cyst diagnosis, what happens is you trigger this thing and we, we, unbeknownst to you, while you've been using the system, we've been collecting data. And when you trigger a cyst diagnosis, it dumps the data that has been collected that whole time, right? And that wasn't clear to me because from my perspective, especially the first few times I did this, I'm like, oh, I invoke a cyst diagnosis. As soon as I invoke it, it must be taking stock of the whole system and say, I'm just going to dump the current state of the system to a big file or something like that, right? But apparently that's not what SysDiagnose does. What SysDiagnose does is take all the data that we've been gathering in the background and we're always gathering in the background and dump that for some period of time in the past. But either way, when you're trying to explain what you want the user to do and why, especially with this whole, you know, do it immediately after the issue reproduces and tell us the exact time, there is like a fundamental, you know, knowledge gap between like, well, what am I doing here? And what time am I noting? Like down to the point of like, you're supposed to be noting the time that the bug happened, not the time you did the cystiagnose, right? This says captured immediately after the issue reproduces. So that means the time of the cystiagnose would also essentially be the time of the bug because they're telling me to capture it immediately afterward. That's not really cool. Now they're saying sometimes the bug was reproduced, you, you know, there's a big time gap between when the bug was reproduced and when they launched cystiagnose, right? This is the perfect opportunity to to do this once, have a couple people sit down at a table and say, we're going to ask for millions of people for cystiagnosis. Can we have a web page that explains what a cystiagnosis is and then have this text expander snippet that says, you just type these two keystrokes and it says, we need a cystiagnosis, cystiagnosis, X, Y, and Z. And then use like the magic of hypertext to link one of those words or say, if you want more information on what a cystiagnosis is and how to trigger it, please go to this web page. Well, you can't get those no hypertext in, in the feedback system as far as I can tell. But either way, it's done so often. Don't leave it to the discretion of the person sending the thing to say something like this. Like, please note the exact time. And the exact time example they give is, uh, you know, month, day, year, hour, minute. In 60 seconds, there's thousands and thousands of logs. And if you're <laughs> expecting me to note down to the second when something happened, the, 
the clock in the menu bar doesn't show seconds by default. And if I'm going to check on my other device, they're not necessarily synchronized. It's like, well, what do you, why do you want to know this? What are you trying to get at? It's, it's so maddening, the sort of failure to communicate. Failure, there's no meeting of the, we're not, we're not communicating here. You have a need, but you're not able to communicate that need to me in a way that I can do what you want. And everyone is just frustrated. So building on that, you said there's no thing that explains cystagnose. That's half true. There is a page on the Apple developer website that's bug reporting. And it lists, and this is about profiles and logs, and it lists probably 100, maybe even more, different things that you can collect bug reports or, or cystagnosis or whatever for. Now, included in that is different entries for cystagnose for, uh, for iOS, for macOS, etc. The super cool part is, though, if you want instructions on how to do this, guess what the Apple developer site wants you to do? Search for it. <laughs> Log in. So you need to have an Apple developer account just to see the instructions on how to create a cystagnose. I mean, it doesn't, cool it, like, I'm glad that they have this page somewhere, but like you got to connect the dots. When you ask, for, that's why I'm saying text expander snippet. When you ask for it, that's the perfect opportunity to link people to more information so they can have background and context. And you can't link to all of it. You have to put like one or two sentences minimum in line. So that if someone doesn't bother following that link, they at least know why you're asking for this and they have the context. The things that I think they should communicate is when you do this, it's going to dump information that has been collecting in the past. So like this is an ending thing. Like it's not a start thing. It's an ending thing. And the second is, by the way, if we're going to ask you for something additional like the time, the reason we're asking that for you is because maybe the bug happened five minutes ago and we need to know that. Right. That what that needs to be communicated in line. And then you link to the Web page you said and then make people not have to be logged in to read it. Honestly, that is a, a minor concern because you got to be logged in to do feedback anyway. On two-way communication. So Apple screeners don't have direct access to your feedbacks. They go through a middle party that, especially with the betas, attempts to consolidate similar feedbacks into one bug. When developers want to ask questions of originators or request more logs, we have to go through that middle party. It's a really clunky setup that makes it feel like you're like there's a lot of time going by without anything happening. So to kind of translate that a little bit, so if I'm an Apple engineer and John has filed a bug that lands on my desk, and I want, and I don't know it's John because of this, you know, intermediary layer. If if I want to get more information from this anonymous source of this bug, I can go to this other intermediary intermediary team, which might be Dev Relations, I'm not sure, and then they can go to John and say, "Oh, hey, can you provide us a diagnosis or God help us, whatever it is that 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 me, the developer, the Apple developer wanted." But because there's this middle layer you know, the, the the guy that talks to the engineers, I talk to the engineers, uh, because there's this middle layer, it makes everything clunkier. So that's just, I understand to a degree why that's there, but... Uh. Well, and developer relations is not a good middle layer for any kind of reasonable general purpose solution because developer relations at Apple does not scale. Most people have no idea who, if anybody inside, might be like, their relevant developer relations person for a certain thing. Like most people have no clue. Yep. I've I've gone through years of my career not having one. Then I've then I would like have somebody who seemed to be my dev, dev relations person. And the the funny thing is, like they like if you have one of these people and they eventually contact you about something, or you know, God knows or if you have to ask somebody inside, like, you know, they act so surprised that you had no idea that you had a relevant person to contact. <laughs> and it's like, you, you never tell us. And most developers don't have any contacts inside. So any 
solution that relies on like, oh, well, you know, the real process for this is you contact this person and they contact the the real person inside. Like, that's not accessible to most developers most of the time. Again, it's one of those areas where it seems like the the impression that people inside Apple have of what it's like to be outside is incomplete or incorrect. They they seem to have no idea quite how little visibility and access we have on the outside into the inside. I'm lucky that, like, because of my big loud mouth, I have a little <laughs> bit more access than most people. Most developers have zero Absolutely, there's no one they know inside the company they could like email or you know somebody you know on Twitter you could DM or anything like that's that's very unusual for most developers. The impression I've gotten over the years is that Apple kind of intentionally keeps it fairly inaccessible because they don't have the developer relations staff size to actually provide like full service access to all of their developers. There's too many of them. But I don't think the solution to that is, you know, know the secret password and, you know, whisper at people in bars in in California sometimes and maybe occasionally get an email address. Like, that's not a great solution to this problem. I I know why they do it, but I I wish they would instead scale the staff in such a way that I I I know that's easier said than done, but like scale that division so that they can provide real developer support to a bigger level to more people. You know, it's not even clear to me because given how little experience I have actually being a real developer for Apple platforms, that this, uh, the middle party referred to in this feedback is in fact dev relations. Probably it is. I mean, if that's your guess, then that's probably, you know, a better guess than anything I would have. But the fact that there is a middle party between there, like it makes some sense organizationally and that you don't want your rank and file developers communicating directly with customers because they might say something they're not supposed to, right? So have a buffer in between there. But as this uh, last bit to be read said, uh, it can, you know, it's a clunky setup. It makes you feel like there's not, there's a lot of time going by without anything happening because what's actually happening is, you know, the 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 person inside Apple uh, responsible for the bug has a clarifying question and they ask the middle party and the middle party eventually sees that question and then asks it of you and then you see it and then it goes back. And so this is all bouncing back and forth. This is another example of where, like I said, last week's show, uh, over communication can help, Right. We don't, we're not privy to these internal conversations, but how about on the bug to say, here's what happened. Uh, you know, you're, the, the middle party has seen your bug. The middle party has passed your bug down to the responsible team. The responsible team has passed a, uh, a, you know, a response back up to the middle party. And then the middle party has sent you a response. And that would mean you have like six updates or whatever where previously you had zero. And none of them reveal any secret stuff about going inside Apple. Just that you know something is happening with your bug, and that's reassuring communicate over communicate doesn't mean you need to reveal secrets but let people know something is happening indeed so continuing from the apple people it's also a bit like a game of telephone maybe the middle party just copies and pastes between the internal and external bug reports so what you see is literally comments and questions from the person looking at the issue or maybe the middle party is paraphrasing what the engineer is saying and maybe something gets lost in translation i mean this is a downside of having the middle party and it was mentioned like especially in betas that part of the responsibility of the middle party is to condense so if there's like 50 people asking about the same thing rather than dumping 50 of those on the dev team that's presumably busy working on the the thing that's in beta condense it down into one so now this middle party is responsible for summarizing paraphrasing passing on which is how you get things like uh you know capture a cyst diagnose immediately after the issue reproduces and add the time 
you get that because maybe the middle party doesn't understand why this is being asked for. And like in the game of telephone, it starts to warp over time. And maybe they make their own personal text expander snippet that says subtly the wrong thing to make people a angry that they're being asked to know the time and b not understand why they're being asked at all. With regard to bugs that linger forever without updates, if you file a bug during the run-up to shipping a new version, it's very possible that your bug will be assigned to the next version, which typically means the perceived risk-reward dynamic doesn't favor fixing this bug in the version we're trying to get out the door right now. Okay, so far so good. If a bug is still in the books when a team gets to the final run-up before shipping a new version, eventually someone on a bug review board will ask the room, would we block the shipment of this version because of this bug? The powers of B will debate the relative merits and risks and come up to, to it with an answer to that question. If that answer is no, then the bug will likely be moved out of this version's backlog and into the next version. Again, so far so good. If this, if this bug ever happens to come up for review again, the answer to would we block the shipment of this software because of this bug will almost certainly continue to be no based on the justification that, well, we didn't block it last time. Why should we do it this time? Debates about the logic of this aside, the reality is that a bug that's ever been deemed to not block shipping is exceedingly likely to never block shipping. And this Apple person says, I might go so far as to say that unless there is a specific champion for fixing that bug on the specific team empowered to fix it, it is very likely to remain in this purgatory indefinitely. Cool. Isn't this like priority queue starvation? Well, no, this is <laughs> this is such a familiar, familiar dynamic of software development in, in large companies. And mm-hmm. it, it comes down to uh, this basic truth. Feature work is always valued internally over tech debt or fixing bugs or whatever, right? Feature work is, you know, I'm working on a product that does X. Now I want it to do X and also do Y. Right, whatever that feature is, because customers have requests for features. Features you can come up with ideas for features internally that can give you a competitive advantage. Feature work is where it's at. So when you have to plan your releases and plan what you're going to work on next or whatever, feature work is where it's at. Right. Everybody has bug queues, and this whole system of like, well, this doesn't block shipping, and you know, so we'll just put it in the backlog, and then you know, it comes up again. It's like, well, it didn't block shipping last time, so it probably won't this time, and just eternally gets there. And the reason it looks like a queue prioritization thing to Marco is because in, you know, in, in computer parlance, that the idea of like having a low priority task get starved because it's always something more high priority happens, but it's an organizational problem because. Unlike a queue that has a simple set of rules, organizations have values that are embodied by their plans. Feature work is prioritized because feature work is what gets you raises and bonuses and recognition and glory. And, you know, you can brag about on a slide and like everybody in the entire organization is incentivized to work on feature work. Tech debt gets a lot of lip service. But it looks, you know, it's it's never ending pile, first of all. And second of all, when you put up on the slide, we reduced our tech debt by 5% this thing, this release. It's not as exciting for everybody. Um, and the only time it becomes exciting is when the mountain of tech debt becomes almost company destroying. And then finally, the organization wakes up to the idea of, <laughs> oh, we're, just, we're living in a house of cards. This is a serious problem. We all need to buckle down and everybody carve out t- 20% of your schedule for tech debt from now on into the future, like that will overhold. And we're going to do this big release where we're going to burn down tech debt and everybody's new, uh, you know, OKRs are, you must burn down X percent of your tech debt. And then at the end of that release, everybody gets to go up there and say proud and say, we have this much tech debt and we burned it down and here's how much debt better we did. And then you forget about tech debt for two more years, right? <laughs> and and this ties into the customer sat thing where the the only time that ever comes to a head is, Let's work like this, where we prioritize feature work over tech debt, essentially forever until the accumulation of crap 
starts to affect our customer satisfaction. Hey, random stuff that used to be reliable isn't reliable anymore, and it's never getting fixed. Have you heard that on this program before? I think we talk about it sometimes. <laughs> I think Marco has written blog posts about it, right? Only, and obviously, we're more sensitive to this, and we're you know in the tech world, so we're constantly thinking about this stuff. But eventually, if you neglect this stuff too long organizationally, eventually even your regular customers will start to get a feel for maybe your stuff isn't as isn't as reliable as it used to be, isn't as nice. Like it will eventually bubble up. But internally it's so hard to like the, the things that they described here when Casey was going through it, okay, this makes sense. Makes sense. All logical, right? It, combine that with the internal incentives for advancement and promotion and recognition, it makes it almost impossible to essentially quote unquote do the right thing. That's what, that's why these people are, resp- are responding like if your bug has a champion inside, like if there's someone inside the organization who knows it's the right thing to do to fix this stupid bug and they're willing to essentially forego the time they could spend doing something that is more likely to get them a raise or a promotion or a good review to do this because they know it's the right thing to do, that's, ha- that's one way things get fixed. And this is a sign of an unhealthy organization. And this dynamic I described plays out in every software company forever it will always happen right mm-hmm. it's it's the job of the organization to figure out how to counteract that it's a natural force for that to happen so organizations try to have cultures that have countervailing forces that try to be try to systemically oppose this inevitable force because left to people's own devices they will always do the wrong thing in this case so building on that uh, back to the apple people the converse of the quote once a blocker never a blocker quote problem is the phenomenon of once noticed by Steve or Tim or someone important, this bug must be fixed no matter how risky or challenging. Fix it now! <laughs> That's the shortcut to organizational incentives. Oh, the organizational incentives <laughs> is to have a cool feature or whatever. Well, guess what? If your boss or your boss's boss or the super-duper big boss suddenly notices something, oh, suddenly you're now incentivized because now fixing this stupid bug gets me recognition with the big guy. And that's why, you know, I'm going to get a promotion now because it's, and that's, that is a, not a scalable system, B, a terrible system in general. And C, you can't rely on that. You can't rely on someone important noticing your bug. Like you can't, it's not great to rely on champion developers helping as well, but and that's why, you know, running to the press never helps or whatever, as they said in the, in the app store things. That's why when something gets big on Twitter or something, somehow it magically gets fixed because someone who's important suddenly picks their head up from their spreadsheets and says, what is everyone talking about? They're talking about what, what? And they're like, hey, what is what is this thing with name recognition and people getting numbers after their devices in their home? And then someone has to explain, oh, well, we just re- replaced a, let me explain what dns is and we replace this part of the system that does naming and it used to be called mdns and now it's a new thing called discovery day and by the time you're done explaining someone hopefully says well if the old thing was working the new thing isn't put back the old thing right and then they go back to what they were doing for a few years right so wait wasn't that bono complaining to tim cook to get that one done was it bono i don't remember it was <laughs> like, some big celebrity complaining about discovery d problems to i think directly to tim cook and that's how that got fixed oh my god yeah like and this and this 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 sounds so dumb but like Companies, you know, companies in a capitalist system are much more like uh, monarchies or dictatorships than they are like democracies, right? Which is fine. They're not systems of government. You're just, you're just trying to find a way to like make computer products and sell them to people. It's not a human rights issue or anything like that. But it does mean that a lot of important decision making is concentrated in the top of that org chart, in the top of that pyramid. Uh, and you can shortcut the whole thing. By making Tim Cook notice literally anything 
that's annoying you. Like I imagine like Tim Cook's, you know, like or any, any high executives, like the people in their life, like their, you know, spouses or relatives or children should like take advantage of this and say, this bug is annoying me. Uh, and then like bug their parents or uncle or something or, you know, aunt about it until their aunt goes back to work and says, I keep getting bugged about this. Can we just fix this? And again, not a scalable system, but in reality, lots of things happen that way. And it is, it is at once embarrassing for like the org. And it's like, if we had a functioning org that really did handle these things in a systemic way, this should never have to happen. But on the outside, you're like, I'm just glad it's fixed. So true. All right. So with regard to getting in your feedback, can you see if this repros in the latest version, can you reproduce this in the latest version of Mac OS, iOS, whatever the Apple people, right? This is something that's sometimes done in mass after release to all bugs that have been punted out of that version, possibly into next version. It's an attempt to get the bug off the books or otherwise find a reason to close it. If you don't reply in a timely manner saying that it still happens with a new sysdiagnose attached, mm, that was created on the very newest version of the OS and software. The assumption will be that it, it was a side effect fix or it was obviated by something else and it is very likely to be closed, never looked at again. So the person stopped whining, woohoo, it's done. The system works. So the Apple person writes, you know, if the bug isn't fixed and you care about it ever getting fixed, you should reply to these queries. Super guys. This is a typical bad, like it should be opt-in versus opt-out system or it's like, oh, if we don't hear from you, we'll assume everything's fine. It's like, why would you assume everything's fine? Like you didn't even check whether you fixed it. You're just like, fingers crossed. We made a bunch of other changes. Maybe we fixed your bug too. I don't know. Why don't you check for us and tell us? And this is what I referred to last time as like a, you know, hu human resources problem where apparently they don't have enough people. Like, oh, every time we do a release, we got to go through the entire outstanding bug backlog and see if we've accidentally closed some of these bugs by stuff that we did. I mean, no, I suppose you don't have to, but you also shouldn't because like, so, you know, this person writes it said, it's an attempt to get the bug off the books, right? This is more uh, organizational and process dysfunction. Surely one of the metrics that the people in this part of the org are measured on is how many outstanding bugs there are. How big is the bug backlog? How much have you burned it down? How many bugs have you closed? And so there are massive incentives to close bugs. So something like this internally makes perfect sense. You know what? After we do a release, I know we, we, don't, ha we don't have the ability to check every single one of these bugs, but I bet some of them we fix like by accident because we just change stuff around or whatever. So I've got an idea. The system will be just ask everybody, hey, is this still a problem? And if they don't answer, assume it's fixed and then close them. And that'll really increase our, our metrics for bug closures. And that's a bad system. It's good if your goal is to get as many bugs closed as possible. It's bad if, you're, if your goal is to make the software quality as good as possible. But unfortunately, software quality is usually measured by number of outstanding bugs. So you see the problem <laughs> with the system. All right. Another reason that your bug might be closed without being fixed is that someone in a bug review says, there's a bug here, but knowing what I know about the product, I believe the real bug is fundamentally different from what's being described in this report. And this report is more likely to create confusion than lead to a solution. So write a new, better one and close this bug. This is another example of how bugs filed by outsiders can disappear behind the wall forever. I imagine it's frustrating to the person who filed the original and loses visibility into the fix. Yeah, there's another communication thing. Like tons of bug reports are going to be bad. Most of them are going to be bad. It is an important function of this part of the org to consolidate, rationalize, you know, like to know this, to say, I see what these, you know, 700 people are all saying and they're not really getting at the real bug, but I think I know what the real bug is. So I'm going to consolidate these. Oh, that's great. Fine. Do that. It's awesome. Just communicate back and say, here's what happened to your bug. Just like that paragraph that was just written. Uh, this is like you, what you're describing is, uh, one part of this giant elephant that is this bug. And so we've consolidated them all down to this bug, which unfortunately, because we're Apple, you can't really keep track of. But just just so you know, we didn't just ignore your bug forever. What happened is 
uh, it got folded into this larger bug number. And then if you're nice, Apple, maybe communicate, hey, if you want to know what's happening with this larger bug, you don't have visibility into it, but I'll tell you when the bug is being passed down to a dev team, when they're looking at it, what state it's in, and when they close it. Again, these are all communication things that you can do without revealing anything about no secrets, no showing other people's source code, all the things they say, the reason why we can't know what's happening with bugs, just communicate where it is in the state machine and what happened to it. So another thing that developers especially are told a lot is if you want a change made, file radar, you know, make a feedback. And even if you know that other people are doing the same thing, do it anyway. Because apparently it, it, it may or may not be a system of voting within Apple. So if Apple sees that 100 people or 1,000 or 100,000 people have all filed the same feedback, like, for example, if 100,000 people all wanted autocorrect to stop correcting to ducking, then maybe if there's 100,000 people filing that radar, eventually they will fix it. Not that that annoys me at all. Anyway, uh, with regard to that, uh, the Apple people write, some groups use this bug voting thing by, by duplicate count, so by, by figuring out how many duplicates of the same bug there are. Some groups use this to inform their decisions, but other groups don't. It varies wildly. It's mostly true for radars with incredibly large dupe counts, as in in the tens of thousands. And those really only happen when they can be automatically duped, which brings this individual to auto-duping. Apple has systems that look at stack traces and, okay, so sorry, another piece of vocab. So stack traces, here's what the, the system was doing at the time or what the program, a specific program or app was doing at the time. And here's how it got to where it was. You know, like a few minutes ago, it had done this and now it's trying this and then it, and then it's about to try that. And so that it, it, that's a very kind of high level way of thinking of a stack trace. So coming back to this, Apple systems that look at stack traces and sysdiagnosis attached to radars and automatically dupe radars based on that info. This is the most likely, likely way for any given radar to accumulate a notably high dupe count. This is another gap in human power versus automation. This type of automation sounds great. Again, if your goal is like, oh, we're getting all these feedbacks and radars, we need a way to deal with this flood. Like, how do we how do we rationalize this? How do we lump them together? How do we sort of sort through them and find out which ones are valid, which ones are spam, which, you know, like you need to look at them all, but there's just so many of them and it takes expertise to know how to put them together. So any way you can automate that is great. And automating by saying, let's have my automated tool look at the stack traces and the cystognosis and look for similarities and lump them together. If that's the only way you can get a high dupe count, that means they don't have enough people looking at them to notice that, all right, let's say there's a bug where the stack trace and the cystognosis show no similarities because the bug is not straightforward. It is a weird second or third order effect that is perhaps entirely reproducible. Maybe 50 of those people put in sample projects or great instructions on how to reproduce it. But you can't lump them together in an automated way because the stack traces vary because it happens when people use different programs or it happens in different times. Like there's no way to do it in an automated way. If duping only works or only works well, when you're lucky enough that the, the problem is straightforward enough to have a sort of an identifiable fingerprint and the cystognose and the stack trace, that's bad. And that shows that we need... I mean, having automation is great. Definitely do that. But then you need more human power to help that work because otherwise you could get a very important and terrible bug that has actually been duped perhaps thousands of times. But you don't know that because your automated system doesn't know how to lump them together. So now you need an actual human to look at them and do that. 
It's another plausible reason why you'd get the attach assist diagnose response so often. The most favorable way to interpret that request is that they need more info to diagnose your problem. The less favorable way to interpret that is that it's a request for you to provide information that may automatically reveal the bug to be a dupe. That's such a desperation ploy. It's like, yeah. look, just I need I need you to like include more information in the hopes that our automated tools will somehow get you into the fast lane mm-hmm. of being fixed. Because I, as a human, don't have the, apparently the ability to do that. But maybe if you're lucky, your diagnosis will put you into a bucket with a thousand other things and someone will finally look at this bug. Indeed. So a couple of thoughts from the Apple people on my specific bugs, which again, the feedback numbers will be in the show notes. Hint, hint. Uh, The Apple people write, I don't doubt that this bug happens or that it's extremely annoying, but I'm pretty confident that it's not that widespread. Here's why. There are almost a billion iPhones in active use today. If even 1% of those users experience this bug and then 1% of those users uh, that experience the bug file radar, it would still be 100,000 radars. And 100,000 radars would definitely get someone's attention. But based on your recounting, it's not getting enough people's attention, which tells me it's probably not as pervasive as it might seem to you. Okay, first of all, that's certainly possible. Second of all, even if it's only for me, it is infuriating that my internet <laughs> communicator can't friggin' communicate. Like, this, is, this isn't like a, oh, I'm annoyed at, at the way this looks, or, oh, the dialogues in Big Sur are trash, which they are. It's, it's something that's fundamentally breaking my ability to use this device, which, which I think, I, I would hope, would, if any human ever looks at these bugs, which I know they have, I would hope that someone would have bubbled this up as a big frickin' problem. Additionally, to think that even 1% of 1% of 1% people file radars is preposterous. Nobody files radars. I don't usually file radars because I've been trained not to because they're black f***ing holes. That's why I don't do it. <sighs> anyway. Also, like that number of like, we would notice 100,000 radars only if they're properly categorized as a dupe. Like, yeah, exactly, they would have to exactly. make it through all those filters first, which most of them, the vast majority of them, wouldn't. Exactly. <laughs> my, my bit of uh, feedback on this particular thing is it was noticed. Like, there was an iOS release where in the fairly excuse me, terse... Excuse me, two iOS yeah, releases. Thank where, you very where, much. Well, it's not like Apple gives very extensive release notes. So anything that makes it into the release notes had to be serious enough that they thought to mention it. So they mentioned it. They know about it, and they're trying to fix it. So it's not, you know, the idea is like, oh, I guess not enough people did this, so they didn't know about it. Apple absolutely knows about it. They've tried to fix it. They just haven't succeeded yet. Yeah. So uh, it's very frustrating for anyone. And I, I, I think the thing that's most frustrating to me, and I, John, I think you had said this earlier, right, right at the beginning of this conversation, is that if you take any of these pieces in and of themselves, they're justifiable and make reasonable amount of sense. Like, obviously, there are problems, and that's what you've been enumerating this whole time. But if you take them at face value, none of these things is necessarily bad. Like, using a dupe count as a kind of ad hoc voting system, I, I can understand how someone someone would get to that you know point of view or, or get to that conclusion. But what I don't think your average Apple person understands is that even though radar, from what I gather, is actually pretty good on the internal side, it is so incredibly, indescribably, impossibly user hostile in pretty much every measurable way. And yes, I understand for you, the Apple rank-and-file engineer, it's not so bad. And yes, I understand that you are a special rank-and-file engineer that knows that it's probably not great for outsiders. But I don't think most rank-and-file engineers, and I know a handful of them, and I've talked to them about this a little bit, 
most of them, I don't think really and truly understand how awful radar is and how offensive it is for, for Apple to say, give us a sample project, please. And then you spend hours of your time building that sample project, attaching that sample project, putting that sample project on radar, and then it just disappears into a black hole. It is, it is broken. It is fundamentally broken. And for Apple to shrug it off because it works for them internally is also fundamentally broken. If you're an Apple person listening to this and you think I'm bananas, then I encourage you to look at it from my perspective for a half second, because I see it from your perspective as best I can. And yeah, it doesn't seem that bad from your perspective. It seems actually probably pretty decent. But from our perspective, it's trash. It's offensive. And it's so frustrating. In the same way that I'm so fired up about the god-darned piss-poor documentation that Apple's been putting out lately, or lack of documentation that they've been putting out lately, it's offensive. And the fact that nobody cares enough to fix it it's it's a problem to me. It's a problem. No, it's, it's worse than that. They excuse it. And they, they thank you. That's an excellent point. They excuse it. And that's why I've got to burr up my butt about it. They, they excuse it, and it makes me so angry. And granted, I'm a little on edge, given what's going on this particular Wednesday. But <laughs> nevertheless, <laughs> it's just so frustrating. And yes, I'm glad you made that point, Marco. I'm glad you jumped in, because that's exactly it. It's 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 excused within Apple that oh well it's the best we got and you know it works for us internally so whatever no that's not good enough if you want to be the Apple that you think you are where you can do no well not that you can do no wrong but that you're better than everyone else then you need to do better at this I've I've seen people paste you know or the link to link me to Android bug reports where you can see almost all the internal communication I understand. That's never going to happen with Apple. I get that. But this is what, what John was talking about earlier. This is, this is exactly it. Like There's, there's got to be amount, an, an amount of communication between all of it and zero. And I got to figure out that, uh, that I got I to gotta believe that there's some way that Apple can figure this out. You're smart people. Figure it out. I continue to try to talk Casey down off his ledge to say, Apple does know about your bug and they're trying to fix it. And your bug, to be fair, as you fair. Say, is... Surely one of the harder kind of bugs to fix because it has Agreed. to do with interfacing with a third party thing. So I think in this case, you're not actually being ignored. It's super frustrating because it is a fundamental function of the device and it's not something off to the side as the point you made. But I do think they know about it and are trying to fix it or having problems. So even though this particular bug has got to be up your butt, it's like I don't think it's actually emblematic of of the larger problem. The larger problem, what made me think of it again, what made me actually decide to put in this giant uh, follow-up aside from all the feedback we got about it was that uh, uh, spoiler alert for upcoming year in review things, but we have some friends who do some year in review type things on their websites about Apple. <laughs> and one of the questions they ask is to rate Apple's uh, software quality. And every year, it's the question, how did you rate the software quality? Whatever it is, one to 10 or, you know, one, one to five, five. Yeah, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. um, it should be one through six, hint, hint. Yeah. Um, and, and it's a thing like this kind of report card is exactly what I was talking about before, about like the incentives inside the organization that, you know, feature work gets prioritized, but there also there's the customer sat and there's the idea of software quality and software quality. Like just like in this questionnaire, I was like, well, how, how do I measure software quality for an entire company? They make so many things, right? That is the big question. And the small question is, well, how do I measure software quality on the level of an individual project, right? 
And that gets into all of these sort of uh, systems with metrics and things that are gamed and perverse incentives. You have to come up with some way to measure this because if you can't measure it, you can't do anything about it. If you have no idea what your software quality is, like what are you ever going to do? But almost every system to measure software quality, especially ones that are internally focused, like how many bugs there are or whatever, like there's just so many ways to intentionally or unintentionally game that type of system. In the end, what actually matters is do customers feel like you're putting out a quality product? Does your product do what you say it's supposed to do? If someone got an iPhone and they're trying to talk to their family in SMS and they're missing messages, as far as they're concerned, this product doesn't do one of the basic things that it's supposed to do. And they're going to rate your software quality low. But on the flip side of that is if someone gets one of your products and it more or less does what it's supposed to, but there's tons of annoying little minor bugs that make them think maybe they're using the computer wrong or why does this thing look like this or why doesn't this thing work but then I click on it the first time and the second time it does... Those things accumulate too, and that is the hardest thing to measure. Like, do customers feel like when I get your thing, it's just, you know, I won't I won't have to think about this stuff? Or do they feel like they're being gaslit by your software? It's like, oh, well, I can drag this, but I can't drag that. And when I click that, it highlights sometimes, and sometimes it doesn't. And sometimes it pauses for a brief time. And sometimes, you know, obviously things like crashes and stuff like that are easy to measure, but it's the things that are hard to measure that get you. And every time I answer the software quality question on this annual survey of of Apple things, I think about it mostly in terms of like how many questions have I had to field from relatives about why is my computer doing a weird thing? How many times (laughs) have I seen a bug that's not a crasher, not a data loss bug, not something that's going to show up on any metrics, but it's an annoying little thing. How many of them are there? There's always going to be some, right? But if they build up to a certain level, it you know, a critical mass of sort of malaise of, of software, it, all of a sudden people start to get cranky and have these big long rants on podcasts and everything, right? That's what Apple has to manage. That sort of dark matter of, you know, the dissatisfaction uh, with software quality. And I understand that it's hard to measure. I've been working in software my entire life. It is not easy to get this right. That's the challenge. That's why they get all the big bucks. And I feel like Apple, I mean, there's a separate question about hardware quality. And in general, I think they do a better job of that butterfly keyboard aside. But on software quality, <laughs> I feel like Apple has had a quite a roller coaster over these past few decades on software quality. And it's difficult for me to connect the software quality that Apple puts out with anything that's visible externally. Hardware quality, design, uh, the products they choose to make and don't choose to make are much easier to connect with the larger environment of the industry and what people say on earnings calls. Oh, we want to be in this space. We don't want to do that. Uh, we're going to stop making printers. We're going to start making cars. We think AR is the next big thing. All that makes sense. But software quality is like, what's affecting that? Like, they've been making macOS for a long time. And it's basically been the same thing, a personal computer operating system that has a bunch of windows on the screen and a menu bar and a pointer and like runs programs. And it hasn't changed that much, but the software quality is all over the place. And I just wish, I just wish they could get a handle on this in the way that I think they have a handle to give an example on their hardware quality. They've been making iPhones for a long time and the hardware quality of iPhones has been amazingly consistent. When there's problems, they address them quickly and they don't repeat the same mistakes, right? And in general, every year the iPhone is a good piece of hardware. And, you know, and, and you know, in many ways, we think we talked about this in past shows. Hardware quality is a little bit easier to do than software quality. You know, the hardware people will disagree, but so- software is way more complicated than hardware. 
and hardware is it's you're more able to ratchet up the knowledge curve we've never worked with aluminum before so it's weird oh now we've worked with aluminum for many many years right and now we know a lot about working with aluminum and in fact all our products are made out of machined aluminum you can get better at it and ratchet your way up whereas no matter how long you're doing software you never get to the point where like software that's easy it's always going to be hard but there's these big wild swings that i feel like have to be related to some internal organizational malfunctions that crop up, become fires, and get extinguished, smolder for a while, then flare up again. Much like the wildfires in California. Let's make a lovely analogy there. I don't know. <laughs> anyway, it's it's frustrating on the outside. And I think it's one of the most important things that Apple needs to address because they do almost everything else pretty good, if not great. But software quality, they just do not have a handle on. It's not the end of the world. It's not functional high ground, Marco blog post or whatever year that was from. But I feel like because they're so close to being great and because like the M1 hardware is amazing and everything, you just you just feel like, oh, just if you could just spend one release just knocking down bugs, you would g- fall back down below that threshold of, of annoyance and say, okay, now we're back to the regular number of bugs instead of like everywhere you look, there's some something that doesn't work right or doesn't work consistently. And and Casey, what you're doing with this with this thing with your messaging thing, I kind of wish you didn't have this problem because you keep putting your bug number and your feedback number in the show notes. Your problem is so much worse than mine, but I want mine to be fixed too. Let's, I'll put one in for you. Don't let's worry. Let's put my feedback number. It's a cosmetic bug. I feel bad. It's a cosmetic bug, but I but I <laughs> but it's a cosmetic bug that affects like one of my two apps, and I feel like it would be easy to fix if someone who knew something about the relevant frameworks looked at it. Even like I said in the past show, maybe I'm doing something wrong. I would love to know that too. Just after you fix Casey's bug, which is way more important, someone please look at my cosmetic bug. It's got a sample project. Moving on, can we hopefully find something a little more awesome to talk about? Marco, let me live vicariously through you. Uh, there's nothing that retail therapy cannot fix. Am I right? So <laughs> what's going on? What's going on with your equipment, your setup, your 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 working world? How's, how's things looking? I actually don't have a ton to report on that front at the moment. Okay. Um, I do have the new OWC Thunderbolt 4, Thunderbolt 3, whatever the dock is, the, the new OWC docking station thing that has the three upstream, or I guess downstream, uh, Thunderbolt 3 ports. This is the Thunderbolt hub, is that right? No, the hub is like the the smaller one. Ah, okay. The dock, even though I would still call this a hub, but the dock people call it a dock, so whatever. Okay. Anyway, the comparing it to the CalDigit, it's a little early to say because I've only been using it for about three days. So far, it's kind of a mixed bag. So I have this weird... So first of all, you know, the good and the bad. It is like, you know, a nicer shape. It has more bandwidth on certain ports. It's basically the CalDigit in, you know, in a, in a reasonable competitor. Um, unless you really need those that like massive thunderbolt pass through, um, which I which I don't so far. I'm very curious right now. I'm, I'm keeping them both for now uh, because I'm curious uh, when my XDR arrives if I can actually pass it through either of them or if I have to plug it in directly to the MacBook Air. I I would love it if I could pass it through it, and I've heard mixed reports from people. Some people say you can't really pass the XDR through anything. Some people say they have an XDR and they're passing it through theirs just fine. So. Like everything else with Thunderbolt, once you get to the high end of things, it probably comes down to things like what cables you have and stuff like that. So I'll see how that goes. I'm I'm very curious to to see when that arrives. Um, the XDR, by the way, is not supposed to arrive until like early next week. So I might have it in time for next week's show. I hope I do, uh, but I, I might not. 
anyway, so, but, you know, the LG passes through this, this thing just fine. The OWC thing, because it requires, as we mentioned, uh, because it requires Big Sur 11.1 to be supported at all, there's a couple of odd things about it. So, like, one thing, the, this morning I was restoring the old Intel Mac Mini um, so I could uh, send it back for trade-in. If it booted normally, the boot screen would be fine on it, but the restore, I guess, app, whatever the restore environment is called when you do a macOS system restore by holding down Command-R at startup, that environment doesn't support it yet. And so, I like, I had to stop using it for that environment and plug my monitor directly into my Mac, the Mac Mini um, that I was restoring, rather than going through this dock, because, like, Again, like certain things support it, but it's very new, and certain things don't support it. Doesn't that dock only work with Big Sur eleven point one? Yes, we mentioned that last time. So maybe your recovery environment is not Big Sur eleven point one, right? So like, and I don't know what if anything ever updates the recovery environment on, on a system, but yeah. So like, you get weird stuff like that that happens uh, with it so far. But um, I also it seemed I, I had like you know a- after I said clamshell mode has been one hundred percent perfect for me. <laughs> Oh, no. The very first day I was using this, which was, I think, Monday, it was a little bit buggy. Like, weird stuff happened when I plugged and unplugged, like, for a few hours, and then it was fine. Now, I had zero such bugs of that type on the CalDigit, and I've had a couple on this one on that first day. So I don't know if it's just coincidence. Maybe I would have had it either way. Maybe it's something else. The other weirdness I'm having with this, remember, if you remember correctly, the issue I had with the CalDigit, it seemed fine in most ways, except that I couldn't get the built-in Ethernet port to connect at more than 100 megabits. And if you just told it to auto-configure, it wouldn't connect at all. Like, you you could force it to 100 and it would connect. If you forced it to gigabit or auto-connect, it wouldn't connect at all. This, the OWC uh, Thunderbolt dock, also has an Ethernet port on it, and its Ethernet port also won't connect at gigabit. But its problems are different. (laughs) <laughs> so it will auto connect like if it auto senses it will auto connect it will connect to only 100 megabits if i try to configure it manually to gigabit it will say okay and it will report that it is connected via gigabit through the system preferences hardware pane but if i look on the switches control panel like the, the ubiquity switch that i'm plugging it into the switch says nope this port's 100 megabits right now i don't i don't know enough about that to know what could cause that the disagreement between the device and the switch as to what speed it's running at? Um, but that's, I think, interesting. When I was home, I, I brought back with me two useful diagnostic things. I have the original uh, Belkin USB-C Ethernet adapter that Apple started selling in 2016 when they went all USB-C on their laptops. So I have this Ethernet adapter. I also have the old Thunderbolt, I think Thunderbolt 1 uh, Ethernet adapter that Apple started selling back in roughly 2012-ish, I guess? Whenever the laptop... Yeah, 2012 was when the first Retina MacBook Pro came out, and that is when they dropped Ethernet off the high-end laptops. And so they started selling a Thunderbolt 1, I believe, uh, a Thunderbolt uh, Ethernet adapter. I also have the Thunderbolt 2 to 3 adapter. So I brought back with me that Thunderbolt adapter because what I had heard is when this when the little USB-C one came out in 2016, I heard that it was kind of crappy and that it was slower in practice than the old Thunderbolt Ethernet adapter, and that if you have a Thunderbolt 3 slash USB-C Mac, that if you actually connected the old Thunderbolt Ethernet adapter through the 2 to 3 adapter, it was faster than using the native USB-C adapter. <laughs> I did actually try all of these things, <laughs> and the Thunderbolt 
one adapter plugged in through the the, the you know the Thunderbolt two to three dongle works fantastically when plugged directly into my MacBook Air. I plug it directly in, it loads up instantly, and it connects at full gigabit speed. So this tells me it's not the cable, it's not the jack, it connects at full gigabit speed. Also, when I plugged it into the Mac Mini, to its built-in Ethernet port, full speed, gigabit, no problem, both sides recognize it, full speed. My old iMac Pro, same thing, it works full speed every time. So I know... It's not like the problem's not outside of the computer. Like the, the 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 cable is fine, the switch is fine, the wiring that runs through the wall is fine. Like all that should be fine because many things can connect via gigabit and transfer just fine. And you know, running a speed test gets me right up approaching gigabit speed. So I know the rest of it's okay. The Cal Digit can't do gigabit, and the OWC Thunderbolt Hub can't do gigabit on its own built-in port. So I don't know what's going on with Ethernet going over these Thunderbolt dock things. Something's up. I've tried I tried all the things with the CalDigit where they where they tell you like, oh, well, if you just reboot and reconfigure your Ethernet things with the Thunderbolt bridge port one and two or port zero and one, and then if you reset your SMC, then it will all of a sudden start working. And first of all, I did all that and it didn't start working. But second of all, even if that would ever work, that's not a solution for me. Because the whole reason I want an Ethernet connection <laughs> is because Ethernet is supposed to work every single time without hassle. And when I plug it directly into a computer with an Ethernet port, it does work perfectly and reliably. I don't know what it is with these, with the, you know, the things that are built into these Thunderbolt docks, but I can't get it to work through them reliably. And that, to me, is a, is a pretty big value loss <laughs> for these docks. Um, so I'm a little disappointed in the Ethernet situation on all these Thunderbolt products so far. But uh, I am making it work just fine. I mean, and the reality is my computer where it usually sits is about, I think, nine feet from the Wi-Fi router. <laughs> Granted, there's a wall between them, but it's so close that really, like when I'm on Wi-Fi, it's pretty rock solid. So this may all be moot. You know, I, it, obviously, when I have a desktop here, like when I have the Mac Mini here, I will wire it because it's best to wire stuff if you can, if it's convenient to do so, just to get it you know, not, not only more reliable and usually a little bit faster, but also just gets it off the wireless network to free up the, you know, radio bandwidth for other devices. In the meantime, if it ends up this Wi-Fi situation or the Ethernet situation is too finicky through these docks and I have to use, use Wi-Fi when I'm using the laptop, that's, that's fine too. This is another reason why we always talk about Apple it being beneficial for Apple to make a set of products that constitute a complete ecosystem. We talk about it in the context of Wi-Fi docs usually, but things like this, if you're going to make all your laptops have all, all the same shaped ports on them because you're like, well, you can connect anything to a Thunderbolt dock. Uh, all right. Well, Marco so far has bought in two of the, you know, most commonly recommended, most expensive things that ostensibly plug into one of those cool ports and ostensibly do a thing. And he's having trouble making both of them do a thing. And you would imagine that if Apple sold anything like this, something that you could connect a Mac laptop to that offers a bunch of ports, that their thing would work, that the Ethernet would work without being configured because they're Apple, right? The benefit of Apple making the whole thing, we talked about in the context of the M1, the great benefits of when you control the entire stack from top to bottom, we're not getting that benefit for laptops. In theory, they let you connect anything to it, but in practice, you have to find one that you can buy. And so you just buy and try and know it's got a problem and buy another one and try and know it's got a problem. And most people... 
aren't Marco and don't just keep buying products until they find one that works. Usually what happens is you buy one, you grit your teeth and buy a $100 or $200 Thunderbolt thing that's supposed to do what it says on the box and you can't get it to work and you Google and you get frustrated and maybe you're like, oh, am I going to go through the hassle trying to return this and get my money back and go through their tech support and just that's not the experience people want to deal with. Uh, if Wi-Fi was like that, luckily it's not. Luckily you can buy third-party Wi-Fi things that Mac work with without much of a problem. But, you know, I guess Ethernet is more narrow now that everyone uses Wi-Fi. But I feel like the promise of these laptops hinges on the product, the promise of the things you connect to them. And for many years and many generations now, finding things that you can connect to them that forget about aesthetics, forget about price, forget about price performance, that just simply do the job they're supposed to do reliably all the time has been a problem. And so this is something that Apple should address eventually. Because, you know, if you see them talk on stage about it or if you talk to them in person, it's like, well, we've got these great Thunderbolt ports. What are you complaining about? This this is what we're complaining about. He's just trying to get Ethernet to work. It's not, it shouldn't be rocket science. Yeah, and and I shouldn't I shouldn't need to be an expert in any of these areas like i shouldn't need to know about well oh well this one this one won't negotiate to, to gigabit speeds or maybe i have to reset my smc three times every time i want it to work like no that's not that's not a solution that's <laughs> this this is not yeah the whole point of you know having and this is why ultimately this is why i complain about having like multiple having too few ports on the laptops this is why i like desktops whenever i have like a stationary workstation they they tend to work better like when you when you don't need these extra adapters and peripherals and docks and hubs and dongles things tend to work better many people are totally fine and and they're like hey what what's the big deal i you know i do this i use these kind of things and they work most of the time and to me, there's a massive difference between something that works most of the time and something that works all the time. And I don't have a lot of tolerance in my life for things that work most of the time when there are options that work all the time in that same solution, like in that same role, that there is something I can do to get full working Ethernet with no tricks and no jumping through hoops and working at full time at full speed every time. So I know it's possible. I've had it for years. And so, you know, when, when something like this comes out and it's like, oh, well, this is, it's fine as long as you, you know, jump through hoops every so often. Like, no, that's, that's, not, that's not a solution. Anyway, I do uh, want to derail the show slightly. I'm going to go rogue <laughs> and insert a rogue Ask ATP question right here in the show. Oh, this is John's favorite. Carry on. So, yeah, we, yeah. We've got a lot of Ask ATP backlog, so I'm actually happy for you to pull one of them out of there. <laughs> oh, great. Re- reduce the backlog. So this came in from listener Brian a few days back. Uh, Brian asks, how does Marco sell his unwanted computers? He's mentioned in a few episodes that he sells them, and I'm wondering if he uses something like eBay, Craigslist, or some other networking tool to find buyers. Is it just word of mouth and people Marco personally knows who are in the market? I'm asking because I have a bunch of computers and related equipment I'd like to get rid of, but I'm tired of being scammed by bad buyers on eBay and don't really want to go to the hassle of selling on Craigslist or Facebook Marketplace. Thanks. So I wanted to add, I wanted to address this because I just sold stuff and I'm, I have a lot more stuff I want to sell, um, and and a lot of people are going through this of like oh crap the new M1 Macs are out and they're awesome how do I sell my old Intel stuff and and that way I can buy the new M1 stuff, and and so I, I get this question a lot because people see me like saying on Twitter hey anybody want this and then it's gone in like ten minutes, um, so I figured I'd share you know what I could here. Uh, this is a very common problem of like not wanting to deal with eBay or Craigslist or Facebook. Like that's, 
those are all incredibly messy. It is by far the messiest way to sell stuff. But the good thing about going through something like eBay is that if you have something that's somewhat specialized, like you've seen me on Twitter sell computers just fine. Like I, I can sell Apple laptops to Apple, you know, fans that follow me fairly easily. And I'll tell you how in a second, but you know, that that's, that's the easy part. What you don't see is me selling more obscure things or I'll try and I usually fail. So something like, you know, I wanted to sell a while back. I had this pair of Rode wireless lavalier microphones with like, you know, the little wireless belt packs and the wireless receivers and everything. And I tried to sell it and I just never got any takers on it. Like, because it's specialized gear. And even though I have a decent number of followers on Twitter where I was trying to sell it, I don't have enough people who are looking for that kind of specialized gear. And so you can you can kind of tailor like how you're selling things, where you're trying to go based on how like how specialized, how how like niche is what I'm trying to sell. And if it's if it's something that's fairly specialized, eBay is basically the only game in town because eBay will get you the highest chance to sell the most obscure or specialized or relatively unwanted things. Like somebody will buy it on eBay. Um, And then as you, if you have access to more people and if something is more broadly applicable, then you have more options on how to sell that. So what I usually do is my main interest is in getting something sold as easily to me as possible. I don't want to deal with anything. I don't want to deal with people like, you know, eBay is the worst. Like, you know, people do get sellers get ripped off on eBay all the time and, and sell. If you are going on, going to eBay to like sell a laptop, you are taking a risk. Like the, the buyer could rip you off in various ways that there's lots of scam buyers, uh, especially for things like laptops on eBay. And so it's, it's very, very risky. I would suggest if, if you want to sell something like a laptop, consider instead doing either Apple trade-in or something like a uh, Mac me an offer or like one of those various sites that buys le- that buys like used Apple computers as their business. Like, cause what's great about that, like you will never get the best price doing that. Uh, at least not usually. And, oh, and by the way, to judge what something's actually worth, this is another use of eBay, go to eBay Look at completed items, but look at sold completed items. There's a separate uh, checkbox on the search page for sold items. Because what you want to see is, what what is this thing actually sold for recently? What I usually do when I'm trying to sell something is either go through one of those brokers like Apple or, you know, Mac Me an Offer or whatever, and just accept that they're going to be a pretty low price, or see whatever things you're going for on eBay and offer it on Twitter for like 20% less than that. And usually people will jump on that soon enough if there's a market for it at all. Now, granted, this is not, you know, available to most people. Like the, the Twitter option is not available to most people. Um, and honestly, you're not missing out on a whole bunch. Twitter is awful. Uh, but, <laughs> but um, you know, the, the other options are, again, like either less money for doing like the basically like they traded into the dealer route. <laughs> like you know, it, 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 these exact same problems when you have to deal with, when you have to sell a car. Like if, if you ever sold it, sold a used car, it's exactly the same trade-offs of like you can trade it into a dealer or like a bulk buying company and they won't give you a very good price. But the advantage of those things is it's almost no hassle. There's almost no risk and it's really easy. 
like right now, I sold this Mac Mini back to Apple. I probably could have gotten maybe a, a few hundred dollars more if I would have sold it privately. But I'd be it would take much more work, and I'd be taking a risk that the buyer might scam me. And you know, and I, and so I actually might not make that much more, or the amount of time that I would have to spend dealing with that, like putting it up for sale, dealing with any inquiries, shipping it, packing it, you know, all that stuff. That time is all valuable to me, and so in many in many cases, I might actually just choose the cheaper trade-in price uh, from you know Apple or whatever because it just it saves you the trouble. You know, again, it's just like it's just like when you have a car when you trade it into the dealer because you don't want to deal with people. You make less off it, but it is often better in the long run for you. And finally, better than selling it at all is if you don't need the money for it that much, and if there's someone in your family who needs a computer or a phone or whatever, just give it to them. And you know, you can be the person in your in your family who gives gently used computers to people who really need new ones but never buy them themselves. Um, so I do that with a lot of my stuff. You know, my family is a family of hand-me-downs. Um, not Tiff, because that's she wouldn't let, let let that fly. But mm. it's a family <laughs> of you know, like you know, extended family. It, this is kind of a rambling way of saying like there's lots of different ways to sell stuff. eBay is best if you want the highest price but are willing to take the most risk and do the most work, or if you have very specialized stuff. Selling it to people you know is generally not recommended but um you know giving giving it away to people you know is okay and if you want something very low effort and low risk but it'll also give you kind of a low price that's when you do things like trading into apple or the various other sites that buy stuff or or let you trade stuff in so i mentioned last week that i that i had two christmas gifts i wanted to talk about uh one of them was the uh, vr headset the oculus uh, quest 2 that, that i got for the family um I now want to talk about a gift that my wonderful wife got for me. Now, this, <laughs> I would never, if you would have gone back and told me of five years ago that this is actually a gift that I would want and that somebody would get for me not as a joke and that I would actually love and use, I would be shocked. But here we are. Tiff got for me for Christmas a gaming PC. Oh, my God. <laughs> that sounds like one of those gifts that you get for someone that's really kind of a gift for yourself. Yep. She got you a bowling ball. Mm-hmm. She she did. She got you a bowling ball. <laughs> oh yeah, it says Homer on it. No, so uh, a couple years back, maybe a year, year and a half ago, Tiff got a gaming PC. You know, she was getting into certain PC games and and, you know, as you know, John, playing games on Macs is painful. So So when Tiff needed a gaming PC... She went and got a, a real gaming PC and notably chose to get a laptop, a gaming laptop from the wonderful Razer with a Z company, Razer. Uh, so she, she got a Razer gaming laptop, a 15-inch, whatever the Razer gaming laptop that's 15 inches is called, uh, that was for, for sale about a year ago. And I made fun of her relentlessly because of the, all the crazy like RGB keyboard lighting things that it could do. It's, it does a lot of ridiculous stuff. It's like totally over the top with like RGB and everything. But Razer is actually, from what I understand, and from from our experiences with with it, um, it's actually a pretty decent PC maker. And they seem to do things with a with the RGB stuff aside, with a higher degree of taste than what 
I usually see from PC gaming hardware. That is is not what I would have thought of. I mean, I guess everything's relative, but I would not say that Razer is a conservative brand when it comes to (laughs) uh, stylized gamer type stuff. It's not the most extreme, but it is also not very tame. There's lots of black and neon colors and jagged edges and a lot of Razer mice that look like someone took a lump of coal and shattered it and said, here's your mouse. (laughs) Not, but see... (laughs) That style doesn't really carry into the laptops, though. The laptops are actually pretty boring black slabs for the most part, and they're pretty nicely made. With neon lights that come through the keyboard and, you know, and a green a green logo on the cover and whatever. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So anyway, so Tiff's had this gaming PC, and when the family started playing Minecraft a lot, which started really in, in full-blown strength uh, this past spring, uh, Tiff played mostly on the Nintendo Switch, Adam played mostly on his iPad, and at some point in the spring, I decided I need to play Minecraft because this is what my family is doing, this is what my son's really into, I want to be able to, you know, relate to my son and and know what he's talking about and spend time with him, and, you know, other parents, you know, they maybe, like, throw a ball with their kid or, or, you know, like, whatever their kid wants to do, the parent tries to do it with them. Well, my kid wants to play Minecraft all day, so damn it, I'm going to play Minecraft all day. So I learned how to play. And Tiff and Adam vowed to teach me. The device that was left for me to play on uh, was Tiff's gaming PC. And they, and she let me use it because she also knew that I was comfortable with keyboard and mouse for that kind of like, you know, open world and, you know, crafty kind of game. Like she knew I was comfortable with that. And so I said, great, I would love to learn on that. That became basically my family Minecraft device all year. The entire year, every single time that PC woke up and it said, hey, where's Tiff? And it's looking around for Tiff using the Windows Face ID thing. It's looking around saying, hey, Tiff, where are you, Tiff? And every time it was me and I had to type in the password manually, I, ne- I never changed it over to like mine. Um, you know, it's still hers. Um, you know, she would gracefully let me do it. But Tiff wants her gaming PC back. And so that entire time I was using it, you know, it, it was it was being used, and that's nice. I was getting used to it. I was really enjoying playing Minecraft uh, with the family and occasionally by myself. And I started thinking, you know, maybe I maybe I want to try the new flight simulator, or maybe I want to play, you know, whatever new Sim Cities or or City Skylines. You know, like maybe I want to try some of these other games. Maybe I want to try installing some of my old games I used to like. And I, I didn't really want to do it because it wasn't my computer. Tiff, sensing this uh, and wanting her gaming PC back, uh, <laughs> decided as, as a Christmas gift she was going to get me a gaming PC. And she kind of hinted, like, well, if you were going to get one, what would you get? And, you know, I looked at the options. The funny thing is, like, the laptop hardware world has not really changed much since she bought hers. So the one I got is almost identical to hers. Uh, the The main difference is when I looked at the specs, I saw that there was a, a slightly higher-end trim level that came with an OLED 4K touchscreen. Oh. And I thought, okay, 4K on a laptop, on a PC laptop, I don't really need. A touchscreen, I'm a little curious about, but I probably wouldn't use. But OLED, that's interesting. Uh, because we frequently play in a room that has a lot of sunlight coming into it during the day. And that makes it hard for me to do anything in dark areas in the game on Tiff's LCD gaming PC. 
because it's, I mean, look, it's not the best LCD in the world. These these aren't laptop, these aren't Apple quality laptop displays that, that Razer's using on their LCDs. Uh, so, you know, it's not great for, you know, low, like dark scene detail in a sunny room. I would have to like not do my quest in the nether uh, in Minecraft until nighttime because I couldn't see it well enough during the day. <laughs> and I thought, well, OLED could be better for that because OLED's really good at, at you know, dark detail and, and and being super bright in the day and stuff so let me try that let, let me see like you know hey if, if there's there's another option i want to try that oh it's actually the opposite when it comes to televisions because it can't get as bright so the advice for tvs is if you have a sunny room get a get an led backlit lcd television because oled can't become bright enough to overwhelm it but it sounds like what your problem was is especially on like cheap lcds where it's not like you couldn't make the bright parts bright enough. It's that the dark parts you get like I'm assuming you get like glare on the screen and the screen looks like it's gray because yeah. the the sort of matte finish on the screen or whatever the light is reflecting off of it. And so you have two problems. One is uh can I see the bright parts? But two is do the black parts suddenly look really light gray because it's catching light. So the OLED with its actual black blacks is gonna help there. And hopefully on a what I assume is a small laptop screen size, like it's not a forty inch laptop. Hopefully, at a small screen size, the OLED can get bright enough to compete with the sunlight. And and the reason I wasn't looking, I wasn't considering desktop options here for lots of reasons. I mean, number one is like, like when Tiff when Tiff got hers, I first initially thought like it's a, it's going to be a laptop, you know, a laptop GPU. How good could that really be for for you know PC gaming? And the answer was pretty damn good like it could do a lot especially you know we're not playing in incredibly demanding games here you're you know? playing minecraft try microsoft flight simulator on it in 4k you'll bring it to its knees yeah well oh, hold on sir i'll get there but <laughs> so so you know i figured like we don't need the massive you know desktop cards also trying to buy a high-end desktop gpu right now is not so easy also you know a desktop is a much bigger ordeal not only is it much larger physically but then you need a monitor that you can plug into it and i don't have a spare i'm not gonna plug the lg into it i'm not like i I don't have like you know extra monitors lying around i don't want to set up a whole desk station for a desktop because this is not something that i'm that i'm doing like super seriously all the time this is something that i do sometimes for fun with my family a laptop is actually perfect for this if it can be anywhere near good enough and these laptops, so they, they both, so it, they're 15 inch models. They both have the, I guess, laptop version of the 2080 Max Q, whatever. <laughs> it's whatever the the best 2080 is that Razer offers. Like that's what I have, and uh, and it's actually really good. I don't know what a desktop could get me, but I'm guessing this is getting me at least 50 percent of what a desktop is getting me, like in like high end GPU frame rate stuff on the highest settings and everything, and that's great for me for for a laptop. Like, it's fantastic. I am extremely happy with the performance this gets for my needs and considering that it's in a laptop and not a particularly large laptop. But, you know, it's it's a 15 inch. It's, you know, it's a little heavy. It's not too thick. It's, you know, it's it's a 15 inch laptop. It doesn't feel, you know, too, too ridiculous for that size class. The fan is not super loud. Like, you know, it spins up. You hear it when you're playing games, but it's not like a jet engine or anything. It's not like disturbing. Uh, so it's it's actually a really good balance. And this is why when Tiff kind of floated the idea of whether I wanted mine, I basically said like, yeah, get me yours but with the OLED screen uh, because I've been playing on it for a year 
And it's been totally great for, as a laptop. Like it, it, it really does shock me how good it is. And that's mostly what we need. You know, I, I, I use an external mouse. I use the Razer, um, the Mamba Wireless, <laughs> these names. And it's just a basically, you know, two button thing. I, I could even use a more basic one. I already killed one by right clicking too much, I guess, or too hard. I don't know. Oh, neat. Yeah. So <laughs> I, I killed a mouse over about eight months of Minecraft. <laughs> I killed the right mouse button. So uh, anyway, and I know as these things go, I could have gotten better bang for the buck if I built a desktop myself. I could have gotten higher frame rates or lower temperatures or whatever if I built a whole desktop. And I used to build desktops. I know that. <laughs> like I used to really enjoy that. But right now, I'm at a point in my life where I wouldn't really enjoy that. And, I, and I'm very happy to have the self-contained, complete thing of a laptop and not have to deal with a whole bunch of stuff. So anyway, all that aside, yeah, I'm very happy with this, with this hardware. Um, so actually using Windows and like having to set it up and make my own user account and sign into the Microsoft Store and all, you know, all this crazy stuff, that was actually a really interesting experience because I have not used Windows really much at all since windows xp like that's that was the last version i really used for more than you know trivial things here or there and so a lot of this stuff is is pretty new to me for the most part i i was pretty happy with like the windows setup process you know this is running i guess what what is windows 10 is the latest version whatever it is it wasn't as bad as i thought it would be certain things have gotten better certain things haven't certain things are just papered over from the olden days and they're they're worse they're just covered up (laughs) but it really wasn't that bad it was totally so you know it was interesting because i was basically approaching it almost the way like a a regular non-technical person would approach it because i don't know anything about windows anymore again like you know the last version i used was like you know 15 20 years old (laughs) so you know it's it's been a while and the way things are done now is a little bit different. I actually did have to kind of just like plow through and figure stuff out. And it really gave me some, I think, useful perspective that I haven't had in a long time of like, you know, what is Windows like? What is it like to use it? What is it like to try to get stuff done on Windows? Um, one thing that made it very, very easy to get set up there is that Dropbox, of course, runs on Windows, but also so does 1Password. Mm. that made it so much easier to set up my stuff there. Cause you know, I didn't, I obviously I'm not going to move like my entire computing life onto windows. Not only would most of it not be compatible, but you know, this is a gaming PC. That's, that's what it's for. So I'm not going to move over a bunch of stuff, but it was nice to be able to like set up one password in Dropbox and be able to transfer stuff back and forth, you know, be able to log into the right accounts at the right times with, you know, all the, the nice big long secure passwords and stuff like that. It was actually really nice and surprisingly easy to get those things running and, and working. One of the biggest things that I hit was I really missed AirDrop. Oh yeah. Like we yeah. had <laughs> I had the, you know, the the old PC, you know, I had Tiff's PC. And there, there were a bunch of like Minecraft data files that I wanted to move from Tiff's PC to my new PC. And like, all right, I have a laptop here, four inches away. I have a, another laptop almost just like it. How do I move files from this to that? And I could not figure out, like, I assume there was some kind of network way to do it. Just use, just use SCP. 
<laughs> Windows, you may not know this, but Windows has a Linux subsystem now. You you can use uh, SMB or you know or, or, or that's that's type, wasn't, type Command K in the Finder, right? <laughs> <laughs> wasn't uh, wasn't isn't SMB a, a Microsoft protocol? Yes, yes. Yeah. It's it's a, yeah. I, I was just thinking that like you were using Dropbox to sync files. It's so strange that you know, you have these two computers that are in the same house on the same network, and the way you're transferring files is by passing them to a third party company that stores them in you know data center somewhere, and then they come <laughs> back to the other computer. Rather than and they both speak SMB. It's the default in Mac OS, and it's what Windows has used forever. If you knew the right incantations, you could simply network the two together via SMB and uh, transfer files, but because you didn't. Right, then... yeah. Windows is like FFmpeg. If you know the right incantation, <laughs> it can do a lot. Wow. <laughs> I mean, I bet you can do it in my computer somewhere or whatever the hell, but I, I, don't, I don't know either because my computer that I use Windows on is the same is my computer, so I never have to transfer the files anywhere. They're all either there or they're not. Yeah, so I ended up, like, I couldn't figure out how to do it in any reasonable way, and so I ended up doing it, like, the most like basic way possible i i had an sd card and i meanwhile tiff's computer doesn't have an sd card slot mine does and so i had to use my macbook USB-C sd card dongle <laughs> plug the sd card into the old computer copy the files onto it like a giant floppy disk unplug it plug it into mine copy them off <laughs> you didn't have a usb thumb drive no what year is this you gotta have thumb drives. Everyone's got thumb drives. I've, you know, I was never a thumb drive person. I, I've, I mean, I've had them here and there, like that were like given to me by you know freebies from conferences and stuff. Uh, but I, I never used them. I, I never got into that lifestyle because like when they first were coming around, I was very much still like a, a CD burning person. <laughs> and then in their later days, I would just use the internet to transfer stuff everywhere. And then eventually, SD cards got so cheap that you know that became a reasonable way to do it as well. Uh, but anyway. So after I eventually got my files transferred over, I did get to play games and I learned why PC gamers don't like 4K screens. Oh no. It's a lot of pixels. Yeah. So first of all, the OLED is amazing looking. Like it is so it looks so awesome. I I was just blown away how much better the games look on the OLED compared to on the fairly mediocre LCD that the other one has. Uh, it, it's, it's a massive upgrade in, in like just color, contrast, brightness. Um, it has the glossy finish instead of, because it's, it's duck screen, has the glossy finish instead of the like matte thing. And so it looks, you know, just sharper and brighter. It looks amazing. And when you run the games at 4K, they look amazing too. Uh, it's like it, it. It's like upgrading to Retina, you know. And and even in my blocky world of Minecraft, the edges are all really sharp now. <laughs> wow! You know, every cube has a bunch of edges. It looks amazing, uh, and I'm very very happy with it. However, when you're running games at 4K, it makes it harder for the GPU to drive them. Quite a bit harder, actually. <laughs> the issue I had was when I started playing Minecraft. That you know. It looked fantastic, but I noticed that when I would move the mouse to move myself or to look, it would like lag severely to the point it was like delayed input almost to the point where it, it almost gave me motion sickness. Just like because it was like you know I would move the mouse and then it would kind of you know then go over. I had to dive into the world of trying to debug Minecraft issues on Windows via web search, and you live to tell the tale. 
I do not recommend going into this world. <laughs> it's everything you think it would be. It's a whole bunch of like, you know, forum posts from eight years ago from t- from total idiots who don't know what they're talking about, or at least their information is extremely outdated. A whole bunch of YouTube videos that are the only information about Minecraft that's any good that you have you would watch, and it's you know, hey guys. So if you're having performance problems on my, you know, it's just like, oh God, just get to, get to the point. It was awful <laughs> trying to figure this out. And what they recommended once I got through all the, hey guys, was, you know, your, your Windows Gamer greatest hits. So first upgrade your video drivers. Okay, how do I do that? <laughs> I knew how to do it 15 years ago. How do I do it now? I have this NVIDIA control panel that I have to log into because downloading video drivers now requires a a name and an email address and a whole account. Like, I had to tell NVIDIA what my birthday was. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. Those are the best. The video card manufacturers install so much software on Windows. It's like, we need an entire... I know there's a whole bunch of screens in Windows and the control panels and the display settings where you think you can control your video card, but you have no idea. Here is an entire... AMD, ATI, NVIDIA app that includes screen capture ability and the ability to change features on your video card with scary warnings next to them telling you you can destroy your screen if you do it. It's like, <laughs> what? What? I just want to change the resolution. And it's just, it's terrifying. I was a little a little concerned about, and I, and I might still be concerned um, about uh, OLED burn-in on a PC. Like, you know, for games, that's obviously a pretty big concern. My, my OLED TV back home is indeed permanently burned in with the Minecraft heart bar. Uh, because Tiff was playing it on the Switch on that TV for the entire quarantine. <laughs> so, you know, that's, that, that burden's still there. We saw it last week. It's still there. <laughs> uh, and so I was worried about that. But And I noticed one thing that um, that I assume the built-in Razer software that came pre-installed on this or, or something that is pre-installed on this, I noticed that no matter what I set it to, if you set the start bar to like auto hide and show, like auto raise and lower when you just like just like dock auto hiding, if you set it to not auto hide and to always be there, sometime later that day, it will reset itself to auto hide. Neat. So I assume that some kind of you know stock software is permanently just going to overwrite that setting over and over again to avoid burning in the start bar to the screen. <laughs> so anyway. Ah, interesting. So so back back to my uh, you know my Minecraft thing. So I'm like looking at I upgrade the the graphics drivers and I try and everyone's like oh well actually uh, if you, you have to you know enable VSync or disable VSync and yeah, it's just all this crap and and it didn't make sense to me like why would I like why would I want to turn VSync off to fix a performance problem that seems like a bad idea. Because then it doesn't hold your frame. It starts drawing as soon as it's ready, even if the bottom half of the screen is still a previous frame. So PC gamers love to to say, tearing, I don't mind tearing. Just give me that next frame as soon as it's ready. And I think it's ridiculous, too. I always turn on V-Sync. But if you want the absolute maximum, PC gamers just want to see the FPS number go up. So if you want the the absolute (laughs) maximum FPS number screen tearing who cares and that's that's solved by later technologies but if you're watching older videos and you see these pc gamers saying always turn off vsync because you get one more frame per second i just can't get on that page yeah so anyway i did eventually fix it the fix was to not only it was basically do the opposite of whatever i said not only force vsync on in the nvidia control utility thing because the other problem is like 
Minecraft, we, we mostly play the Bedrock Edition. That way we can play with the Switch and the iPad and the family. And the Bedrock Edition doesn't have a lot of graphical controls. It, w- it runs itself at whatever resolution Windows is currently running at. So the full 4K. <laughs> and it doesn't have any built-in, like, you know, disable VSync or anything like that. But NVIDIA's giant bloated control panel utility thing does have a way to say either for specific games or for everything force these settings to override whatever the game says and so i was able to force vsync on in that way and then i also some some forum post recommended that you limit the frame rate the like you actually impose a frame rate limit to 60 because the screen refresh rate anyway and doing those two things 60 frames a second lock and vsync forced on fix the problem because the gpu was trying to render a billion frames a second and it was doing it was overloading something or other and it was causing input lag basically and that instantly fixed the problem well you're really sacrificing your responsiveness in pv minecraft pvp by uh, locking to 60 i just want you to know that (laughs) yeah right because for a 38 year old dad playing minecraft the real limitation is that extra what is it 16 milliseconds of it of my my reaction time right you really what you want for is the game to be to be computing faster slightly faster than your refresh because that will help reduce uh your you know your input lag and the peaker's advantage and it's really important to you in minecraft i'm sure yeah oh yeah totally so anyway i got it working it was great it looks incredible uh i was just playing it uh yesterday with 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 adam and it's just it's i'm having so much fun with it um i thought it was funny that within an hour of setting up my gaming pc I hit a problem that required diving into video drivers and tweaking my GPU settings. <laughs> it's like, you gotta be kidding me. It's, like, it's still Windows. It's still gaming. It's still like all the crap that you have to put up with all that stuff. It's all still there. I, you know, that stuff was all there 20 years ago. I thought maybe by now we would have gotten past some of it. And no, we haven't. Other, otherwise, um, I, I, I tried the cool RTX ray tracing mode of Minecraft. Which I thought it would be like just a setting you turn on and it ends up you can only do it like on certain maps that NVIDIA made. And I, I assume maybe they like baked in the, the light textures or whatever. Because like whatever sun position the map starts in, it just stays there forever. Like the sun, you don't have the day-night cycle that you usually do. So like I'm playing one where it's like a sunset map and it's like at, at dusk and it looks really cool. And the the whole idea that this computer can do real-time ray tracing that as as a casual observer to this world but as enough of a geek to know what ray tracing is i'm sure they're doing all sorts of hacks to reduce the amount of work they have to do but my god that's incredible because i remember like back in for my first computer it was a 486 and i downloaded some you know ray tracing renderer program and i remember like setting up a scene and hitting render you'd have to let it go like overnight to render a frame one just to render a still picture with ray tracing lighting this program had to run all night long for one picture and the idea that i can play this full 3d game with live ray tracing and again i'm sure there's tricks and hacks and and work reductions in place here it is very asterisk asterisk on that yes it's not it's 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 a little bit of extra ray tracing special sauce thrown on top of a raster engine. Still, it looked amazing. And to see all those real-time lighting effects and everything, my God, even though like playing it as Minecraft that way is really weird because you know, like, things like torches don't really work 
because they generate shadows and so like you need way more torches than before <laughs> um, so it's you know as a, as like a, a fun game playing thing it's not so fun because it makes a lot of things about the game not work as well because the game wasn't designed for that but as a amazing tech demo i was so happy to see it like it just it made me almost giddy uh just like wow i can't believe hardware is so advanced that it can do this these days uh it really was incredible um i also in addition to playing the a 10 year old game i tried to play a whole bunch of 20 year old games <laughs> of course um, and by the way, yes, I know everybody. I know there's a whole bunch of new games I should be playing, and I'll get there in time. Really, I will. Maybe, maybe not. But um, ultimately, if all I ever play on this is Minecraft, it's worth it because we play that much Minecraft as a family, um, and I get that much enjoyment out of it. But anyway, I also thought, hey, there's all these old games from you know my old PC days that I would love to play. Let's see how many of them work. It was not as many as I would have guessed. And the great thing is, you know, you can go on Steam or GOG and uh, download a lot of these old games for like $2, like they, you know, they, totally legally, like they, you know, just they're just really cheap because they're so old. But it was, I, I had a lot of issues, like I couldn't get Total Annihilation, which is my favorite game like of all time back then, I couldn't get Total Annihilation to work correctly, like it, it works a little but it has some issues that make it pretty hard to play. You know, the best way best way to play old games like that is the same way you play them on a Mac or on Intel Mac. VMs, virtual machines. Like that's Yeah, I was going to ask about that. Once you get to a certain age and there's no like this there's no Steam version or the GOG version is weird, like just just do the thing. Like get get a VM put Windows 95 on it and go to town and that will work and you won't have any performance problems. So, yeah. Yeah, I think I think I might do that because like it, it seemed like they were not working for, you know, just software glitchy reasons. You know, they these games that were like it's funny, the ones that so, you know, in, in the concept of like, you know, the, the game rendering engine thing, if the game uses what used to be called a full screen mode, the the game takes over the screen and sets the screen to whatever resolution the game wants to set it to. Anything that works that way mostly worked fine still. The problem is games that that would like render basically as a window and and let windows render over them sometimes or or you know just take whatever resolution the PC ran at like those games often seem to to not work as well. Um also just certain games that that were just even very like kind of extra old. Like I tried running the the very first version of Worms, which is a DOS game. Uh but I like it better than many of the newer ones. Um Worms man, what talk about like losing the the franchise like worms started out so good and i'd say after about worms world party or so really lost its way <laughs> like once it went it went 3d which was terrible and then after 3d it came back to 2d and just had all this like mania on screen constantly it was ugh, it, it was it's not a good scene but old worms was really fun um so i wanted to play some of those old games and couldn't get a lot of those to work um, as, as, as I mentioned, TA had issues, SimCity 3000 and four both work great. Uh, I would, right. I, I don't really enjoy four that much, but I do enjoy SimCity 3000. So that was, that was kind of fun. As Casey knows, I, I was always a big fan as he was of Transport Tycoon. And of course, there it is. Of course, Open TTD works great, but it also works great on Macs and Linux. <laughs> so I, I did play a little bit of Transport Tycoon, but again, I could have done that on my, on my Mac. One thing that, I, that was a nice surprise is this wonderful game that I love a lot 
that I believe was once named the best game nobody played of 2002, Moonbase Commander. This is it, it's exactly what it, what the award sounds like. It's it's a game that was like pretty under the radar, didn't sell a lot of copies. My friend found it in a discount bin at like a software store back when those were a thing for like five bucks, and we played it. And it's actually a really good game. It's it's a turn based kind of top down artillery um, game, and it's I love that game. It's so much fun. I installed that. I played a little bit. Adam saw me play that. He got super into it. And then the whole rest of the trip, you know, in the same way that I had taken over Tiff's gaming PC the year before, Adam had taken over my gaming PC to play Moonbase Commander. (laughs) (laughs) It was just this, it was a wonderful experience to have, you know, all these, all these old, all this old nostalgia that was so readily available, um, ran so well, obviously, you know, Moonbase Commander is a DirectX 8 game. And even that was a stretch only to make like the little ripple effect with it, with a pixel shader. Um, anyway, so had a lot of fun. It was a, it was a wonderful present. It was a wonderful diversion. I think Christmas is a, is a great time for video gaming for people who don't play a lot of games the rest of the year. Cause like, you know, you kind of, you don't have a lot else to do. Everyone's kind of home, you get your family together. It could be like a fun thing. Um, so I had a lot of fun and, uh, haven't done a lot of the old games since I got back, but we have played Minecraft on it and it's, it runs it perfectly. And it's, again, the screen is awesome. Haven't touched the touch screen once, <laughs> at least not not you know not as a, an input method. <laughs> I have found that uh, whenever I want to like brush a piece of dust off the screen, it interprets that as a touch. <laughs> oh, neat! <laughs> so I think Gruber might be right about touch screens. <laughs> now that now that I have one, I'm like, oh yeah, I don't, I don't. I mean, granted, I'm, I'm not using it to get any work done, so I'm not like you know browsing documents or anything. But I, yeah, I, I guess I don't really actually need touch screens on my laptop. Turns out. Otherwise, like, it's a fantastic piece of hardware. It is exactly what I want and need for my very specific and limited and casual gaming needs. Uh, and it's great. And I, it's, it's a great gift. And I never would have guessed in a million years that I would have a gaming laptop. <laughs> but here we are. And uh, I'm, I'm really happy with it. If it makes you happy, it makes you happy. What about flight flight simulator? Oh, I, I haven't actually installed it yet, but that's next on my list. The, the new the new one where you can fly around like the real world maps. Because that's the that's the new PC gaming crusher. In terms of like, no matter how big a gaming PC you have, you can turn the settings up high enough to make your computer cry. Yeah, and and look, I don't care. Like, I know I'm not going to be able to run everything at max. I don't care. I actually don't care about flight simulation at all. I just think it would be cool to fly through these real places in the world with the map data. Like, that's what I want to do. It's not about, like, I don't care about the planes. It's all about the weather effects. The plane models are amazing, and I think you'll be impressed by especially the interior, but also the exterior of the planes. They do look amazing, but the weather effects they put into this game, which I think are also driven by real-time stuff, but they look amazing. So you'll you'll be able to to appreciate that, at least, even if it's at a slower frame rate. Yeah. I, I almost bought it, but it's like there's like six different editions, and I don't, I'm like, I don't know what edition I need. So I just gave up and didn't buy anything. I figured I'd research it later. You can get Destiny for that gaming PC, just FYI. Oh, God. Or I could not. There it is. You can use your fancy Razer gaming mouse for a game where it might actually have some actual influence. Now, see, this is this is, this is the thing. Like, everyone who's going to recommend that I sh- check out certain games, I really appreciate that. Here's the thing, though. I really have no interest in first-person shooters. I, I just don't. I know, but you will. It's... it's as soon as Adam switches from Minecraft to Fortnite, which is coming sooner than you think, you better start honing those skills <laughs> if you want to keep playing with them. I have like, you know, political opinions about it's being kind of in poor taste to play shooting games. Uh, but 
I, I just, I don't care. Like I, I did like when I was a teenager and a young adult, I did play lots of first person shooters and, and yes, you know, it didn't make me a violent person or whatever, but still like I played a lot of them back then and I turned out, well, I turned out like this. I don't know if I turned out. <laughs> okay. <but> I, tur- <laughs> I turned out like this, but I just, now I do not have any desire to play games where I'm shooting people. I, I just don't. And even if it's like, oh, it's it's a fun a fun way to shoot people. Yeah, I, I don't. It's not for me. If it's for you, fine. It's not for me. It's going to be for Adam, I'm saying, if you want to keep playing with him. Yeah, some someday I'm going to lose him into that world. I know, you know, he's... He's a he's a video game kid. Like it's gonna happen. It's coming sooner than you think because he's so acclimated to video games. His Fortnite transition will happen earlier than other kids. I know, I know. It's like puberty. Like you don't you don't want like you know he <laughs> he still has his cute kid games. I, I, I want to keep it at that as long as we can. <laughs> he doesn't play PvP in Minecraft. He tells me what I want to hear because <laughs> we've we've expressed to him our sense that like we really don't want him playing games where he's killing other players like mm-hmm, if he's mm-hmm. you know competing in other ways or building co-op stuff that's great uh, we really don't want him playing games where he's killing other players and they're killing him and you should think back to your childhood playing first person shooters and how you would have reacted if your parents said that to you uh, yeah i mean and <laughs> and i know that he does kind of secretly do that like when we aren't looking i I know you know i know he's playing on servers with that and and whenever we ask him like hey are you killing players he'll be like well not exactly you know like he'll kind of like soften it because he knows we don't really want him to be doing that but we also don't feel so strongly about it that we would actually police that and actually enforce that um so we we all kind of have like a like a we're gonna pretend like you're not doing that too much and you're gonna pretend like when you are doing it that you're not and the result is, you know, I don't like it, and you don't do it that often, and so that's kind of a good result for me. I don't think I have to worry about it too much. Like it's what I would have told my parents if they had complained about this when I was a kid. Is that you know, like it's? I know it, it manifests itself in, in a way that, that looks like it has some connection to the real world, but the closest analogy is to like freeze tag. Because there's no consequences and it is just a competitive way to run around and essentially tag your red. Only the tags are projectiles that may or may not look like bullets. Like I, I also find <laughs> distasteful the realistic sort of military simulation where it's actual guns from the real world and that's part of the whole thing or whatever. But in the end, all those competitive online games are are much more analogous to sports than they are having to do anything with actual guns. And honestly, I would rather someone play with virtual uh photorealistic guns than real ones any day so i'm sure you don't have anything to worry about but you know kids like probably less so than most adults do like the competitive aspect of it just like the same reason kids like to play freeze tag and tag your it and run away from each other and have competitions it's just part of it's just natural part of play only it's happening on the computer so you know i think you should dive into that with him if only so he can beat you and you can feel the pride slash shame of your own offspring being better at something new. Nice. Uh, yeah that's i i know that time is coming but yeah and, and i also i also do recognize that you know the that video game violence is kind of a a continuum and you know there's like there's over over on one side there's like the call of duty or like I, and i i'm not i'm super not into that either for myself or for him and fortunately he's not he's not been exposed to that and yeah, I think it's going to be a while before before that's permitted. <laughs> I mean, Fortnite is pretty cartoony, like in that spectrum. You know, they're avatars that do funny dances and have costumes. And yes, they use semi-realistic looking guns, but the entire game looks like a cel-shaded cartoon and is on its face very ridiculous. 
I actually didn't know that. I, I don't know anything about Fortnite, so that's actually good to know. Um, because I, I again, like I know the time is is coming soon. Like he he already has some of his some of his classmates in school play it already in third grade. Mm. Uh, so <laughs> I know the time is coming. Uh, but you know, again, like there is that continuum, and like the the like you know realistic military shooters with real guns that I'm super not into. Uh, and then if it's more like, you know, and then on the other side, it's like Splatoon or battle Tetris, <laughs> right? You ever seen competitive Tetris where you're, have you played that? Remember those, the two player versions? Um, I, I did, I did it like on my graphing calculator in, in uh, high school. Like I would, I would run the little headphone cable. Yeah. If you get a line on your side, it puts junk on the other person's side. It's basically, it's competitive two player Tetris. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's yeah. Where you're hitting people with bullets. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. I, th- th- yeah, I don't, uh, I, Again, I know that time is coming. I'm just trying to last as long as possible in the wonderful world of like, let's build things, you know, or the things that you kill, they're like square ghosts. Like, that's fine. Like, I don't care too much about that. You know, it's it got to take what you can get. And meanwhile, Tiff is over on the, the giant television screen slicing people's necks open. I supposedly when he's not awake, I suppose. No. Oh, yeah. Like, she couldn't play that. that, <laughs> that the last of us, she could not play that game. with Like, she would do it while he was at school, which was its own adventure in like, dark scenes in a light room <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. she had to play it downstairs just to <laughs> so she, need, she needs to come over to the gaming monitor lifestyle where my my console was connected to a monitor just like my computer in a much more controlled environment than my television has many advantages yeah maybe i guess maybe we'll have some pc monitors in the house pretty soon she can use the lg 5k after uh, next week <laughs> Anyway, thanks to our sponsors this week, Flatfile, Linode, and Squarespace. And thank you to our members who support us directly. You, too, can become one of these members at atp.fm slash join. Thank you, everybody, and we will talk to you next week. Now the show is over. They didn't even mean to begin. Because it was accidental. Oh, it was accidental. John didn't do Search Marco and Casey wouldn't let him Cause it was accidental, accidental. Oh, it was accidental. accidental And you can find the show notes at atp.fm And if you're into Twitter You can follow them At C-A-S-E-Y-L-I-S-S So that's Casey Liss M-A-R-C-O A-R-M E-N-T Marco Arment S-I-R-A-C U-S-A Syracuse It's accidental Alright, so uh, I have news uh, Let me tell you my news by um, telling you a story When I went to college at Virginia Tech and this was in uh, the fall of 2000. And one day, I don't know, a few weeks after I arrived, I got an email from my dad, which was not unusual. And the subject line was New Lists, which was unusual. <laughs> and I opened this email. I'll never forget this. I opened, and I opened this email. And there's a picture of a dog. And that's it. That's the email. It's a picture of a standard poodle. And the subject line is New Lists. So naturally, I call my dad and say, what's going on here? And in so many words, he basically said, well, we've replaced you with a dog. Meet Molly. Okay, then. 
I mean, at least it's less jarring than like if it was actually like you have a new baby brother. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's very true. Uh, your dad didn't say new dog who lists. <laughs> oh wow! It was it was a bit a bit before that was a popular thing. Given that this was the fall of two thousand, but still, well done. I still award you full points. Uh, so we have a new dog. We have a new list. Um, early, I don't know, early ish in quarantine. Uh, Aaron started needling me about, hey, you know, we should get a dog. We're gonna be home all the time for forever. So, <laughs> and, and we're actually, truth be told, we're home all the time anyway. So. <laughs> We should get a dog. And I said to her, absolutely not. And then after months and months and months of this, I said, well, fine. Okay. <sighs> if we can get a dog that doesn't shed, that is going to be small-ish. I'm thinking maybe a little bit bigger than hops, but like not, not necessarily a full-on daisy size. Um, small-ish, doesn't shed, and I don't want a freaking puppy. I don't want to do the housebreaking thing. I'm over it. Don't want to, I don't, I, you know, even though Aaron did most of the work for both the kids, we just, you know, uh, I almost said house broken. <laughs> we just potty trained uh, Michaela this past March. I don't want to do it again. So let's do not a puppy, doesn't shed, not too big. We have adopted, and we have adopted a rescue who is a puppy. She is, what, like 10 weeks old now. Uh, she'll probably be anywhere between 40 and 75 pounds, and she is a Sharpay lab mix that will almost certainly shed. So I have failed in every measure <laughs> on my three requirements. But here we are. As I said to Casey when this was going on slash when it already happened, this is, a, this is a political lesson here, which is that you have to engage with the process because if your only position is no dog, no dog, no dog, the process happens without you. And it seems like the process <laughs> did happen without you. The process of selecting a dog, finding out where you're going to get it from, deciding that a dog is super cute and you need to get that one, that happened all while you were saying no dog. And yeah. so by the time the decision was made, you no longer had time to put an input. So you should recognize earlier on when your family is going to get a dog, whether you like it or not, and, and work within the system to try to get a dog <laughs> that fulfills your criteria. Maybe next dog you can do that with. Yeah. Oh, God, please no. Uh, so, yeah. So the backstory, which I'll try to make brief, um, Aaron's best friend from college, uh, her name is Dorothy, and, and Dorothy's husband, Daniel, they uh, foster dogs. And uh, this particular dog whom we've named Penny, uh, Penny was part of a litter where both the parents passed away right after Penny was born. And so our friends, Dorothy and Daniel, they literally nursed, uh, Penny and I think she had three sisters, if I'm not mistaken. Um, uh, Penny and her sisters back to health or not even back to health, but, but, but to health, to health. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, uh, as this is happening, Dorothy and Daniel, particularly Dorothy were saying to us, you know, you know, this is this is a good dog. I'm telling you, this is a good dog, which probably sounds preposterous, and I and I concede that it probably <laughs> sounds preposterous. Well, it's just one of those things like you expect that they would always like it's it's all highway miles. <laughs> <laughs> you would expect <laughs> right. that they would always say it to everybody. Exactly. Or what are they going to say that this this adorable puppy is bad? <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it's very different. Usually, you don't find no, this this puppy's a bad seed. It came out and immediately I could see it was a terrible dog. No, all puppies right. are precious and beautiful. Yeah, exactly. So, but they, I think what the reading between the lines, what they were saying was, you know, this is a pretty well tempered dog who seems to be pretty chill and isn't exceedingly hyper. And I'm not saying that hyper dogs are bad. I am saying hyper dogs are not for the Casey List family. That's just not our speed. I think something more in the vicinity of a hops is closer to our speed. And, and I don't mean that in a disparaging way at all, obviously. I, I think that, you know, having having a dog that doesn't need to be walked for, you know, 
five hours a day is definitely more our speed. Oh yeah, like the, the, the general like advice on this point is like to get a dog that matches your energy level and activity level. Like, and right. so for, for that's different for everybody. You know, like some people have, you know, a small apartment and they can't they don't they don't have like a lot of time to go out on big walks and everything. And so like you should probably get a low energy dog in that context and probably a smaller one. Or and you know some people have like a lot of land and they're on a farm and you know, they need like a working dog. Probably shouldn't get hops for that one. Like that's not a good match. And <laughs> and so you know get a dog that matches your energy level, whether it is you know a border collie to run around a farm all day or a hops to sit on a rug and be a rug himself. <laughs> exactly. And, and I mean, obviously, it's a bit early to know where Penny will end up, but uh, it, you know, based on our friends who have fostered many dogs, they they have. They had four and ended up adopting. They, they what do they call it? They foster failed. Um, they they uh, are, are adopting one of Penny's uh, sisters, so they will have five dogs now. Uh, I, I trust their judgment, and yeah, we talked about this on the as yet released uh, analog that'll be coming out this Sunday. Mike and I talked about this, and if you'll permit me another quick sidetrack, um, when Declan was born, our OB did not deliver him. It was the middle of the night, and she was you know off duty and asleep, or whatever. When she came in the following morning, and Declan was like six months old. And or six months, geez, six hours old. Um, so she comes in, she picks him up, and she's holding him for a minute. And she goes, "Wow, this is a chill baby." And I looked at her. I'm like, "Are you freaking crazy, lady? Like, what do you mean?" Ah, there I did it again. Hi, Marco. I looked at her and I was <laughs> like, "Are you bananas, lady? Like, what do you mean this is a chill baby? He's six hours old. What is that? What?" But as it turns out, I mean, not every yeah, not every kid is exactly the same, and De- and Declan definitely has his unchill moments. But he's a relatively chill kid, and so be- based on that one piece of anecdata, I've now decided that sometimes you can tell a a person or animal's disposition based on how they are as infants. That's probably wrong, but I, that's what I'm telling myself. It's not, and so. Um, so yeah, you know, Dorothy and Daniel are saying, "No, oh, this is a really chill dog, and I think it's 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 a good fit for you guys." And then they start sending pictures, and oh god, it was all downhill from there. And so next thing I know, I'm driving to Bethesda, making a day trip up and back to pick up this dog. And uh, we brought her home, and so far, mostly so good. Um, as it turns out, um, she's a little bit ill. Um, they, she was on some antibiotics for some things, and uh, we thought that was already licked by the time uh, we picked her up, but it turns out not so much. So she's still on some meds, and, and that's made for um, increased amount of accidents inside. Uh, she's done very well with what I keep calling potty training, but I really mean housebreaking. Uh, and she's gotten to the point that normally, but not always, she'll sit by the particular door we use to take her out to pee. And so she seems to be self-aware enough to say, I need to pee, and I'm going to sit at the door that you will take me to pee, uh, which is great. But obviously accidents are still happening. And, um, you know, one of the one of the things with her sick is she has a urinary tract infection. And so that obviously makes her uh, have difficulty with it and, and need to go more often and so on and so forth. So uh, that's been going OK. Um, turns out puppies like to nip and bite a lot, which is fine for an adult, but harder to explain to uh, a, you know, a kindergartner and a toddler. <laughs> but we're trying to, tr- to curb that as best we can. Um and it's just, it's been wonderful, especially, especially today, as I'm listening to our, com- our country falling apart, having this nice little bundle of fluff on my lap did make things a little more palatable, which was great. So we've got that going for us. And the kids all in all are, are completely in love. Aaron and I are completely in love. Uh, it's also been funny watching Penny, um, watching Penny 
establish her own roles for us. So what I mean by that is when she's interested in like playtime, she'll come over to me. But if she's interested in rest time, she's going to Aaron's lap. <laughs> and oftentimes, like if she's on my lap out of desperation because Aaron isn't around, you know, she's in a different room or whatever, and then Aaron shows up, she is running right over to mama so she can sleep in Aaron's lap, which is both adorable and very frustrating. But, I was going to um, tell you, that's one of the best things you can do with a puppy. And uh, you may be amenable to this based on your sleepy shirt uh, predilections to start having a nap time because puppies love to sleep a lot because they're like little babies right right and i remember when i first got daisy and she was a puppy and i was uh, on sabbatical from work we would have nap time every day where i would lay down and put daisy on my chest and we would just sleep for a certain period of time and if you can get into that routine you get to have a nap and the dog gets to have a nap and you get to have a nap with the dog in your chest and it's i highly recommend it eventually like kids they kind of grow out of that nap or if they're 75 pounds, you're not going to want a 75-pound dog in your chest. But uh, enjoy it while you can. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, that's very true. Um, the only problem with that, though, is that we are currently a no-dog-in-the-bed family. We are also currently a mm-hmm. no-dog-on-the-couch family. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think we'll stick mm-hmm. with yeah. the no... Ca- I think we're going to stick with no-dog-on-the-bed. I don't think we're going to stick with no-dog-on-the-couch. Ca- no Here's what I recommend for the bed stuff. I held the line on the bed thing for a long time. For my first dog, I didn't hold the line at all. It was dogs in the bed. And that taught me that this is a line potentially worth holding. I couldn't hold it for that long. We lasted like three years with Daisy, but here's where I draw the line. Dog can be on the bed, but because I held the line with Daisy from the time that she was a puppy until she was about three, dog doesn't sleep the night on the bed. There's a difference, right? So if, if the dog thinks this is where I sleep for the night, you've got problems. But if you have a dog bed, eventually you get a place where the dog goes, make that the dog's bed. Now we are in the best of both worlds, which is we invite Daisy up on the bed and she hangs out with us all night. But then when it comes time for us to go to sleep, she goes to her dog bed and we are in our people bed. And I don't have to be kicked in the ribs by a sideways 40 pound dog all night long. (laughs) Exactly. And that's why I think uh, I I really think and we'll come back to this in somewhere between a couple of months and a couple of years. I really think we're going to hold strong on the no bed thing. You won't. It'll be fine. I am extremely, extremely not confident that we are going to hold strong on the no couch thing. I think we're probably going to cave within weeks. Yep. Yeah, the couch thing. I mean, you can ha- you can have a dog couch and a people couch is one way to deal with that. And then the people just end up on the dog couch. If you have nice furniture <laughs> and you have a dog, it's kind of like having nice furniture and having kids. It's like, okay, well, you know, there is a it's like the severe weather uh, maintenance guide for your car. <laughs> if you live in New England or whatever. Um, yeah. Kids are kids and or pets change the lifetime of your furniture, let's say. Even if you don't <laughs> let them on it. Right? So just accept that and, you know, be okay with the idea that when the next time you buy a sofa, you're like, well, should we get the super expensive sofa knowing that there's going to be a dog on it? Or, you know, I, I think the benefits of snuggling with a dog, especially in the wintertime on a sofa, outweigh the downsides of your dog slowly destroying your sofa. Oh, yeah. I mean, the whole point of having a dog is to, like, sit there and pet the dog all, all day. Like, that's fun. It's And, you know, you have this little buddy that you can, you know, you can go on walks with and they can keep you company. And they're basically like little love batteries. You <laughs> fill them with love, they give it back. It's wonderful. So are they love capacitors then? Oh, maybe. Well, you got to charge a battery. Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. In any case, so yeah, I, I don't think we're going to hold strong on the couch. And it's not that we have particularly nice couches. In fact, our couches are falling apart uh, because we've had them for like 10 plus years and now two children and and <laughs> and they're just old. And, and I think we'll replace them sometime in the next couple of years. Uh, so it's not because we have fancy, nice couches. It's just that I have a feeling 
and I learned this with Declan, like what, what mom and dad think is a one-time thing, like, sure, Declan, I'll let you have this French fry just once. It's never just a one-time thing with the kids, and I'm assuming the dog will be the same mm-hmm. way. So That's the number one piece of advice I can give you is to try to avoid, like, the begging behaviors by realizing that, like, just never let the dog's begging result in food or, you know, like a food reward from any place that you don't want to forever be doing that. So, like, like what most people – like, right before we got our dog – um, we had a, a dog elsewhere in the family that was pretty annoying at begging at the table. And so we, we made a rule with hops, like not only are we never going to feed him from the table, but no one else is ever going to feed him from a table either. Oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> That's no one ever, like it's never going to be a thing. And as a result, hops doesn't beg at the table and it's wonderful. Meanwhile, like, you know, if things like a few things that have resulted in, in him getting food, like. You know, if I stand near the fridge, yeah, he's going to start poking my leg. It's really cute. He doesn't make any noise. He just, like, pokes his nose onto my leg as if he's, like, tapping me, <laughs> like, tap, tap, tap. It's so cute um, because sometimes I give him carrots out of the fridge, and therefore, like, it's just a thing. Like, that's that's a thing that happens. Like, we, we have some other family members uh, who, for their dogs, they basically come over and beg at the table. Then the person to avoid giving the dog food from the table, gets up, walks to the kitchen, and hands them food. <laughs> and it's like, okay, well, that whole charade doesn't matter. All that matters is cause and effect. And the whole time they're saying, like, now this isn't from the table, and they're trying to explain to the dog with words. Like, now don't expect this every time. The reality is, dogs don't care about your words. They don't understand most of them. And any cause and effect, they'll remember. And so if them begging at the table resulted in them getting food even if it's through a bunch of indirect steps that doesn't matter they're just gonna keep doing it because it still resulted in, in the right result and so like and and yeah this does apply to kids as well by the way as, as you noted but yeah so like just keep that in mind like whatever whatever results in the reward they will remember and they will and it will be reinforced in their mind the more you do it and then like those habits are incredibly easy to accidentally develop and incredibly hard to ever break once they're developed the, cor- the corollary to this, though, is even if there's something you never do, like, oh, we never let the dog on the couch, well, do you ever leave the house? Because unlike being fed, <laughs> being on the couch is something the dog can do by itself. So if security cameras, that's one of the things you can see. It's like, we never let the dog on the couch. All right, so leave the house for a few hours and look on security camera, find out where the dog is. Guess what? On the couch. <laughs> no, I mean, the dog, you're going to lose the couch thing instantly. It's just accept it now. like Because, you know, also, you know, you, you don't want to send the wrong message like it's their house too they live there too and all they want to do is be with you yeah and so if you start sending confusing messages like well you can be with me except when i'm sitting on this thing which you desperately want to jump up and be and sit next to me but you aren't allowed for arbitrary reasons like they they don't you can't explain to them why something is the way it is so it's easier to just be to have things be much more consistent and simple for them in the rules and by the way, man, I wonder if we're going to get horrible feedback about all this like dog advice. Oh boy! Uh, but anyway, on as for the bed, my solution is much simpler than than John's. I don't know if it will work for a larger dog, um, but my solution is to just overheat my dog until he leaves if I want the bed to myself. And so, <laughs> you know, because he he always starts out in the bed, and he has a dog bed that he loves. And most nights he starts out in the bed, and then within the first half hour of us being there, he will usually jump down into the dog bed because I will start like 
petting him with my feet <laughs> and like putting my leg up against his back so and so it makes him all hot and he eventually gets up and leaves yeah it depends on the dog like what you really don't want the reason you don't want the dog in the bed is not because you're mean it's because especially if you have a larger dog it's uncomfortable for everybody because dogs are not polite they just they will lay sideways between the two people and be in the most awkward position and just be annoying and you would think some dogs like you know like hops apparently oh if you poke them with your feet or whatever they're like well forget this i'm not i'm tired of being poked by these feet i'm out of here or they'll get too hot or whatever but really what you want is for the bed situation is to make them want to be in their bed as their most secure place to sleep because it's more comfortable for them too and I don't know, this is what, just what we did with Daisy. I don't know if this is what you have to do, but we didn't let her on the bed at all for years. And then when we finally did let her up, it's just exciting snuggle time before bed. But when it's like, okay, lights out, everyone goes to bed, she goes right to her dog bed. She doesn't want to be on there. She's like, well, if it's bedtime, I'm going to my dog bed. Even if she's been snoozing with us on the bed while we've just been looking at her iPads or watching a TV show for like hours. It's like when it's bedtime, she goes to her bed. And that's the best of all possible worlds because we get to snuggle with the dog especially in the winter months when it's cold we get all the dog snuggling we want and then we need to go to bed she goes to her bed and we stay in ours i'm surprised there's enough room in your bed for you tina the dog and your 35 layers of pajamas during the winter time yeah and and my and my big down comforter uh and <laughs> and one or more of my children who may be flopping on the bed at that time usually to try to pet the dog that's also on the bed you know <laughs> oh my word it's a crowd it's a, so anyway, so it's it is going pretty well so far. Like um, I'm I'm obviously very sad for her that she's ill, um, but we're we have her on meds. It, coincidentally, she's on uh, what smells and appears to be it isn't amoxicillin, but it smells and appears to be what I would used to call bubblegum medicine. And turns out, maybe you two knew this, but I didn't know this. It turns out when that prescription was called in, it was called into a human pharmacy. Oh, yeah. Because I, I did not expect that. And I, again, maybe it's, this is obvious to any dog owner, but I've never owned a dog before. We had dogs when, when we were kids, but they, they weren't my dogs. They were the family dogs, which means they were mom and dad's dogs. And so I was talking to the vet and she said, oh, yeah, you know, I'm going to have to call in such and such prescription uh, to help with, with Penny's uh, issue. Where is your pharmacy? And I'm like, well, uh, what do you mean? Like for, for people? And she said, yeah, yeah. What? And it turns out that's a thing. Who knew? No, because like a lot of dog medicines are the same as human medicines, just like different doses or different mm-hmm. form, you know, different packaging around them or different forms yeah. they take. But you know, like things like antibiotics and steroids and stuff like that, like you know, commonly yep, prescribed things was. for dogs. It's it's usually like it's very a lot of times it's very similar to what humans get. Um, although I've never had that in particular like a human because like my vet is also a pharmacy i don't know if that's like a a, see that's what i had thought was going to happen and apparently the particular vet we ended up choosing that i guess that doesn't happen like they had given us and they didn't know what the particular issue was at first and they had given us amoxicillin at first and that they just grabbed from like their fridge and so i I assume they have like the basic array of things there but whatever this it, it isn't amoxicillin but it's something vaguely similar that that got prescribed i don't remember what it was and that I had to go to a Walgreens for, which which is funny. It was especially funny when the the gentleman on the other side of the drive through window says, "This is for Penny Casey Liss," because the, <laughs> the vet had put in Penny hyphen Casey Liss. Uh, and while I'm at this topic, by the way, um, you do not have to, although I'm sure you already have, you do not have to email me and point out that her name is Penny Liss. She's a dog. We didn't name Michaela Pennyless, even though, you know, my surname accepted, I really wanted to, because I think Penny's a really lovely name. Um, so we chose it for the dog, and the dog is indeed Pennyless. So it was not a deliberate <laughs> pun, even though I do love a pun, especially with my last name. It was not a deliberate pun, uh, but it was the best and only name we could come up with. So here we are. 
And that's totally reasonable because, like, first of all, yeah, like penniless for a human is is kind of you know negative a negative thing, but penniless for a dog is adorable. And also, <laughs> no one calls dog by their last name, so your dog's name isn't penniless. Your dog's name is Penny, uh, except for sometimes at the vet. Um, and and also she's penny colored, so it kind of fits. Yeah, that's yeah, exactly. exactly. Do you want to, by the way, promote her social media? Ah, uh, yeah. So this is a, this is a family issue here. Um, she has to have more followers than just hops. <laughs> <laughs> well, so one of us in the family is of the opinion that that your Instagram is your entire person. And if you get a dog and want to post nonstop dog pictures, well, that's part of your person. Put it on your main Instagram. Others of us who who may have somewhat more Instagram followers have uh, feel like you should opt in to the incessant dog photos. And I think part of the problem is, those of us who think you don't need a separate Instagram are willing to are incapable of having the self-control to not post dog photos every five minutes. Those of us who may have already created this second Instagram specifically for Penny don't have that self-control and all they want to do is just post dog photos all the time. And there's a bit of a familial disagreement. So far, we're each accepting that we are disagreeing about it and the, and the Instagram account has not folded uh, we'll see. We'll see what ends up happening in the long term. But at least for now, um, you can find Penny on Instagram. Well, certainly, I'll put a link to the announcement Instagram post um, in the show notes, and I'll put a link to Penny's Instagram as well. If you are so inclined to look at uh, dog pictures, uh, probably daily, at least for the next few weeks. No, like you have to, like when you have a dog Instagram, like that. That's totally a fine thing to do. But you can do both. Like. Right now, like Instagram, your personal Instagram account ostensibly is about things going on in your life. Right now, you just got a dog. That's a big deal. And so you're right. going to have a lot of dog pictures because you just got one and she's your dog. So that makes total sense. Down the road, the dog pictures will become less of it. Like they'll be less dominating of your main feed. Mm-hmm. And so that's when you can start posting. Like, you know, if you still want to post every day or two on her account you still can but then maybe maybe you post things to her account that you wouldn't necessarily post to your own because they aren't as interesting for your main account you know but um it it makes total sense to have those be separate things also there's this whole community of dogs that follow each other on instagram and it's adorable like hops follows a bunch (laughs) of other dogs and then like me and tiff and adam (laughs) like he doesn't hops doesn't follow other people because he doesn't know other people but i think it's funny to think of like hops following a bunch of dogs and Tiff runs that whole account anyway, so like whenever it happens to it, it's it's like always a cute surprise for me to see it because I didn't do it. <laughs> like, oh, Hops posted a new photo. He looks so good. Yeah, no, I I haven't I haven't yet gone down that road of following other dog accounts. I'm sure as oh, with many things, it's coming. It's only a matter of time. But um, but yeah, no. It's, so far, it's been really good. It's it's super it's super stressful in the sense that it is so far in a lot of ways not that dissimilar from parenting children, like human children, but yet it is very, very different in ways. I don't know. It's hard for me to put my finger on what's, what's different about it. I mean, other than you can't really talk to it because I mean, you can't really talk to an infant baby either, but you know, it's just a little bit different in that regard, but I am enjoying it. I I am very, I think we are very lucky in so far as Penny does seem to be generally speaking pretty agreeable. For example, um, we've decided to put her in a crate only in the evenings. Um, I think people tend to have somewhat strong feelings about this, uh, but she took to it immediately. Like when we put her in, we, we had put her in there on and off during the first day, but we got home at shoot, I don't know, like two or three o'clock in the afternoon. And, you know, we tried to get her to go to bed at 
10 or 11 at night. And, you know, she had only seen the crate for a few hours at that point. And I think she cried for like a minute and then was like, eh, screw it, I'm going to sleep, <laughs> which was awesome. And generally speaking, that's been the case. Like she's been super fine with the crate, which is very, very good. Um, overnight, I've I've been waking her up more than she's been waking me up in terms of like um, taking her out to pee. Uh, Aaron, Aaron, very, Aaron very gently in, in one of those like jokey but no really ways explained to me that I would be the one handling the overnight issues with this child because she did it for the other two. And I think that's a pretty fair trade. Yep. That's reasonable. So so I've been the one um, taking her out now, Erin, because she's the best and, and refuses to listen to me. uh, She's been like making sure that, that Penny hasn't peed the bed when we weren't aware of it or anything like that. And oftentimes coming down to like grab her from me once I come inside so I can take off my coat and wash my hands and so on. Um, but all, but all told it's been like, I've set alarms on my watch to quietly wake myself up and then take Penny out. And, you know, I've, depending on when we go to sleep, if we go to bed normal time, we'll do it like twice overnight. And if we stay up late enough, like to the, to the extreme end of our early to bed, uh, capabilities. So if like we, if we stay up late till like 11 or midnight, uh, we can, we can stretch her to like just one, uh, overnight pee. And so far, knock on wood, as I jinx everything for tonight, she hasn't had any accidents in the, in the, in the crate overnight, which is great. And we, you know, we've been doing like three and three quarter hours and we could probably bump her up to four and it would probably be okay, especially since she has woken us up a couple times in the past and cried and, 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 and basically said, I need to go. Uh, which again, like, if this is how potty training a dog is, I'm the best potty, or I said potty training again. If this is what housebreaking a dog is, I'm the best housebreaker in the world because basically Penny's been doing everything for me. <laughs> um, so far, so good. Remind me of this in like three weeks when I tell you I don't know what to do. She's, she's, a, she's a monster and I can't get her to do anything I want her to do. It'll be fine. It'll work out. Dogs are great. Enjoy and congratulations. Well, thank you. Yeah, and we're, we're really pleased. And the kids, by and large, really, really like her um, and, and have been really adorable with her. And, you know, both our kids have been a little reluctant or perhaps cautious with dogs. Um, in, in Aaron's side of the family, there's a German Shepherd who, for the first couple of years in, of, of his life, I think was excused for behaviors that he shouldn't have been because even at age two, apparently he was still a puppy. Um, and that eventually has come around, uh, which is good. And, and the German shepherd is pretty well behaved now, but he's still a German shepherd. So he's like, you know, 90, hundred pounds or something like that with the bark of like a 300 pound dog. And he's scary. Like he's, he's nice, but he's scary. Um, and, and that's one of the dogs that they were exposed to regularly. And then there's another dog in the family. That's a mutt, uh, who is, who is had, had a, like a really crummy first year of life before, you know, our family, uh, the, our extended family got him. Um, and so he's like a very skittish, very nervous dog and about like 40, 50 pounds. And so, uh, he's well behaved, but he's nervous and skittish and, 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 you know, both the kids, this is like their dog experience. So they've always been kind of cautious and nervous around dogs. And I think Penny, I think, and hope Penny is going to kind of fix that maybe, or at least make it less, less egregious for the both of them. Oh yeah. Cause like people's comfort level with dogs is so tied to their own experience level with dogs. Right. You know, like when, when you don't have a dog in your family yourself, then your only experience is everyone else's dogs and everyone else sucks at raising dogs and doesn't train them right. <laughs> and, and so, you know, it's, a, it's, it's very common for people to be exposed to a poorly trained or poorly handled dog in the real world once or twice. And so if that's the only dog experience they ever have, of course they're going to be a little afraid of dogs. Like that makes total sense. Right. But because 
you now have a dog in your house who lives there all the time, uh, you know, the kids will become accustomed to her and will generally be more comfortable dealing with dogs as a, as a general result as well. Yeah. So we're really happy. Um, I'm scared. I'm nervous. I'm worried that I'm teaching bad things, even though I'm trying my darndest not to. I'm worried that, you know, uh, I'm establishing bad habits some way, somehow. I'm, I'm, it's all the same stuff with parenting a, a person. Um, it, it's, it's not really any different. I think I'm just, I, I, maybe part of the reason I'm, I'm almost more worried about the dog is because I feel like, and maybe I'm wrong, but I feel like you can work through with a person a bad habit and you get more than one chance, you know, despite what I said earlier about, oh, sure, you can have this French fry just once. <laughs> you get, I feel like you get more than one chance to, to, to screw up. You, you, you can, you can screw up a person and undo it. And I'm sure you can do that with a dog, but again, never having experience with it, I'm worried that like one time something is going to fall off the table and she's going to get it and it's going to be like... That's it forever. And I and my like intellectually I know that's probably not the case, but it, it freaks me out that that we're going to make one misstep and then it's going to be committed in Penny's little brain and that's going to be it forevermore. And and I really hope that's not the case and it's probably not, but I, that's what like scares the piss out of me. Uh and so I'm trying my darndest to be vigilant, to be to be loving and to to just teach the right things to not only her but to me and to the rest of us and and just try, try to do right by her. I think you should be worried more about messing up your kids because dogs, on, in general, run simpler software. So, <laughs> so it's like, p- people can be messed up in so many ways. Oh, sure. Some sure, of sure, which sure. may be your fault, some of which may be not be, but they's so much more complicated. It, it can go so much worse with people, whereas dogs, it's much more straightforward. Not that I'm saying you shouldn't be worried about it. Try to do all the right things, but in general – a simpler set of rules can consistently lead you to success, whereas there is no simple set of rules that can lead you to consistent success raising children because, boy, children are complicated. 